This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in Malibu and Silver Lake. Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Bob, and Jared as a place for addicts to go to get treated with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades of experience treating addiction and treating addicts with co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure that your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is critical if you're kicking dope or benzos or alcohol or anything, including cocaine. Aloe has crazy amenities. They have surfing. They have sweat lodge. They have the sound bath meditation. They have equine therapy. This place is so beautiful, I wish I could just go there. But luckily, I don't have to go to Aloe. But if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get better, I strongly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at CASL. That's C-A-S-L. It stands for Clean and Sober Love, the dating app for people who choose a sober way of life. It was created by one addict helping another addict to date fucking safely. So here's the reality. You got clean, you got sober, you got a new life, and now you're ready to date. So where are you supposed to look? The meatball shop? C-A-S-L is the solution. Dating and recovery is real and worth considering if you have your shit together. C-A-S-L is the platform where you can meet like-minded people all over the world. Install the app now on the App Store or Google Play Store. Oh, and by the way, it's completely free. And also, by the way, the people at C-A-S-L have updated their whole site. So if you have been there before, you do not know what you're missing there now. They have video chats just in case you're lonely in quarantine and isolation because of COVID. Find an addict through CASL, and maybe you can make a beautiful love connection. Here's a new ad. It's from our new friends at Pink Cloud, which is at gopinkcloud.com, also available at the App Store and in the Google Play Store. Where are NA, CMA, Al-Anon, or AA meetings near me? Now on one site, on one app, you can go to Pink Cloud and find them. Pink Cloud is an app that will help you find over 245,000 anonymous 12-step programs worldwide, including over 20,000 online meetings. They also have great tools to track your sobriety. Pink Cloud is a safe, free, and anonymous platform. They don't store information. Download Pink Cloud now and start mapping out your recovery journey today. Again, it's at the App Store and the Google Play Store. Pink Cloud is our newest sponsor, and I'm very excited to have them on board because we're going to do some cool Pink Cloud dopey contests. So look for that soon. Check out Pink Cloud at the App Store and Google Play Store. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at BetterHelp.com. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment with a professional counselor that you can message anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it free and easy to change counselors if you want to do it. It's more affordable than traditional counseling and financial aid is available. The service is available for clients worldwide. They can treat depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping issues, trauma, 
anger, family conflicts, or LGBT matters, or even Q matters, grief, self-esteem issues, and of course, everything that you will share will be confidential. If you sign up now, you will get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. Ray says this site is great. Trust Ray. Go to betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast and get 10% off. That's a lot of fucking ads. But this special episode, most importantly, is brought to you by listeners like you through the power of Dopey Patreon. This week, we had Hot Wheels come back to the show. It was beautiful. It was touching. If you want to hear what Hot Wheels is up to, go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. There are so many Dopey Patreon episodes now. I think there's 15 or 16, plus a ton of other Patreon content. Help make Dopey happy, joyous, and free. Help get me out of the deli. Contribute to the show. It will help make the show better. Also, go to the store at www.dopeypodcast.com. It is run by SRO Prince, who are a couple of recovering heroin addicts, and we have some amazing products. We've got the Good So Bad shirt. I wore it yesterday. Super comfy. We have the Dopey Coin shirt. We've got the Dopey Coin tank. we got the new mugs. And, dude, if you guys... I just got the coolest fucking shit. SRO Prince are going to be mad at me, but I got the Dopey Nation holographic stickers because I couldn't resist. So if you guys want stickers, just hit me up on Venmo and I'll send them to you. That's a lot of fucking ads. And here is the Dopey Day Christmas extravaganza.
to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I am Dave, and uh, I'm on Long Island. I'm in the dining room with my favorite person in the world, my beautiful partner, Linda. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. And I have to say, as we prepared for this show, I, I, I realized that Linda and I do things totally differently. We always do things totally differently. If we're getting ready for a meal... Linda futzes around and she won't sit down with me to eat. She like <laughs> walks in the other room. She looks at her phone. She like looks out the window. She needs me to be sitting down and eating and then she starts getting ready. Right. And it's the same thing with this. We're getting ready to do the show and you're futzing around, looking at stuff, charging the phone, opening windows. I like to sit down when everything's in action. And I think you I like... Li- I don't like waiting, so I want, I'd rather someone be waiting for me. Exactly, and I'm always waiting for you. Okay, well. And then with this, though, like I like to wing it, and you like to know what's going to happen. I, I, I like to know what we're gonna, what we're going to be talking about. Yes. And I like to just totally. Well, I'm not a pro. You are. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, now I'm. We're starting this very light, but obviously today is Dopey Day. Yes. It's uh, Christmas in July. It's July 24th. It's actually Friday night right now, and two years ago today, Chris died. Yeah. And um, it's fucked up. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I've told this story on the show a million times, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it one more time. It was, it was here on Long Island in, in our town, and we were walking off the porch, and, and Annie called me and told me that Chris had died, and, like, it was, like, fucking insanity, you know? Mm-hmm. And I still have that feeling. I can access that feeling really easily. Right. And... The summer is always tainted for me now, yeah. you know, because it just, it's just Todd, then Chris every summer, you know what I mean? Right. And um, it's nuts. But the amazing thing about it, it's amazing, it's a consolation because Chris is gone, but uh, the intensity of Dopey has really grown, and I think people are, are really enthusiastic about celebrating Chris and, and showing solidarity with addicts today. And it like blew my mind to see all the action on social media. Right. Did it blow your mind? Um, was your mind blown? My mind was not blown, but it was, it was, um, really, really cool to see. I asked a ton of celebrities to, to get involved and all of them I mean, friends of the show kind of celebrities. And all of them got involved except for Jamie Lee Curtis and Mark Maron. They might have had other stuff going on. Right. Well, Mark Maron was like, nah. Well, tell him what Mark Maron said. He said, I said, I want to ask you a favor. Against better judgment, I want to ask you a favor. And he said, that doesn't sound like a good idea. (laughs) And I told him what the favor was. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I sent him pictures of himself with the Dopey logo. Oh, and, you did? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize you did that. And he said, it seems like you have what you need. And I said, no, I want you to post it. And he just wrote, nah. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I wrote, uh, I'm sorry for asking. And he goes, no, he said, I'm sorry. And I said, don't worry about it. And uh, I said, now I feel all icky and guilty. And he said, you're probably used to feeling those feelings by now. <laughs> so... That's funny. I guess that's the consolation. I like Mark yeah, me too. Um, and maybe next year he'll participate in Dopey Day. Marin is grieving. You know, he lost his girlfriend and right. he's still grieving. And I shouldn't have even bothered him. Everyone's like, "Don't bother him." But back to the the question: If my mind was blown, um, 
I definitely spent a lot of my day on the Dopey Nation page today watching everybody writing, watching all of the different people's faces start to have the dopey eyes. And even, I, you know, I made a post about it on Facebook and I had about seven people ask of my group or my Facebook friends asking me if I could dopey their eyes. And half of them hadn't even heard of dopey, but wanted to be a part of it. So even just, it, it was, it was watching it spread. All I watched was Mark, all I watched was Mark Maron's Twitter account. And he talked about something else. I watched his Instagram. He talked about his cat. no, I watched everybody, and uh, it was wild. And um, and I heard An from incredible, incredible tribute went down today. It, it was really, serious, it right? Was really, really powerful. And I heard from uh, all these people reached out to me. You know, Jeremy Turner reached out to me, and he said, "My whole feed is dopified." And, yeah. And uh, and and Misty reached out to me, and you know, Dan reached out to me, and everyone was just bugging out. Yeah. And. Um, and I'm really proud of it. And I'm really, really proud of... Um, of the fans. I'm, fan, I'm proud of the Dopey Nation. I yeah. mean, Dopey is... I, I say it all the time. Dopey is nothing without the Dopey Nation. But it's true, right? I mean, like, the show... It's like if a tree falls in the woods and no one is around to or hear it. Or bear shits in the woods. What's the thing with the bear shits in the woods? I don't know. Does it smell? <laughs> There's no way if a bear shits in the woods. It's if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? So right. what I'm saying is we could do this podcast... But if nobody listens to it, nobody right, cares. Exactly. And not only do these people listen to it, they're engaged. Well, there's, and there's this massive recovery um, support group that's formed of hundreds of people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like that's the other crazy part is I often forget. It's cool to have lots and I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's cool to have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of listeners. But the fact that this podcast has jumped off an actual giant support group where everybody's friends and gets to know one another and helps one another like that's a whole other level you know what's funny about it to me though what's funny about it to me is that when chris and i started making the show that was not our intention at all and and this is weird but when you found out about the show your first reaction was Get rid of that fucking show. Like, you heard some story about me and your dad and Nora watching some movie, and you're like, who the fuck do you think you are talking about my father on your show? And then somehow <laughs> you looked at something, and, and it, you said, you know what? This could be a real great help to somebody. Right. And I was like, it's not going to help anybody. I was like, this show is going to help me and Chris have fun. Right. And it did. And, like, and it still does. And, and the therapeutic value of Dopey is still... Not on my agenda. Like, and, and, and what I believe is that as long as the show is fun to make, it will have therapeutic side effects. But if I try to make a therapeutic show, it'll suck and nobody will want to listen to it. I think what I loved so much about Dopey <clears throat> was that it could apply to people, apply, appeal to people who maybe didn't want to go to a 12 step meeting or that didn't work for them. And so it was just another option. But it was a fun, cool, different what alternative? I guess weren't weren't you the what's the alt? The all recovery all recovery movement. That's going to put our kids through college. You shouldn't be poo pooing it. So, but more importantly, it Linda, just sounds Linda, too trendy and like the alt movement. But listen, I, Linda, Linda was just saying something. But I do think that that's what really appealed to me, and I thought it would translate well to people who weren't like twelve step. Followers, and it did, and it does, and that, it does. That's absolutely and it applies true. to it appeals to both. 
You it know, does. It doesn't, I have think to be 12... one, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah, these 12-step people get a break and everybody else gets something to believe in kind of thing. Sure. But what appeals to me is Linda's talking and she's not sitting close to the mic and she's talking really quietly and I start fiddling with the knobs and she loses her fucking mind. I made him stop recording and so then I she yell. does some. Then she does some pantomiming of me as a gorilla fucking with the knobs and it's like, dude, that's how the show has to happen. Dude. You're not right. Well, you just keep working, like messing with a soundboard. Listen, it, we need I, it's, people always talk shit about me telling you to sit closer to the mic. So rather than me telling you to sit no, closer, people actually say that you're rude to me. Right that's when the, you yell at me, I thought you meant they're talking shit to me. They're not talking shit to you. Oh, okay. They're saying that how dare you to make speak sure. to such a beautiful woman that's in right, such well. a harsh way. And Dopey Nation, Dopey Nation's got my back. If you had any idea (laughs) of the way, of of the life I live, the abuse Uh that I suffer, the... uh, Here we go. You guys would understand why I can take such pleasure in telling her to sit closer to the mic. But Lynn, you're right. Like, um, obviously, the power of the show has been a way for people to share pain, share experience. And like, I mean, it's still like a fun talk show to me. I don't think about the therapy aspect. I think about... The funny story. I think about like making fun of you or making fun of sure. whoever. Um, well, if the fun part went away and you became just all recovery talk, I bet like half your listeners would be like, "This sucks. I'm not listening to this podcast anymore." So the fact that you don't, you want to keep it being you know fun and having the recovery part be you know a bonus as opposed to the purpose. Well, I don't have a choice. Right? I, I'm not like capable, it's good. I'm not capable of doing the other thing. And uh, and I've been like killing myself to get press for this dopey day. Oh my goodness! So, I, I wonder if people saw your news appearance last night. Right. So like, I contact. There's a fan of Dopey in Texas named Pooja, and Pooja is a reporter in Texas. And I reached out to her, and she connected me with Caitlin in Boston. Who did the story? Right, and the story was pretty great. They said you were a local man. Well, they were wrong. They had that wrong. I'm not a local man. Big, big mistake. But but like I go, I, I you know Linda's here with the kids, and I go on the back back yard to talk to the news, and Susan's fucking banging <laughs> on the glass, Daddy! Daddy, and I'm ignoring her. I'm like, no, She's screaming. I'm focused, and I thought that news piece was really good. It was good. Now today is all about. Um, Missing Chris. Yes. And um, I had an idea. I don't... And if I, if we read this before, I apologize, but I don't think we ever read this. Chris... Maybe we did, but hopefully we didn't. Chris uh, had a great passion for doing a dopey book. He wanted to do a dopey book, which would be a compilation of stories. And originally, it was going to be Chris and I and graphic design Ryan who made the logo. And Chris put together this major book proposal, wow. and this thing—it was thirty-six pages. This book proposal, and this thing—and it, it also included a lot of fans' emails in it. Hmm. So it's fan stories. It's—I wrote a story. It's such a good Chris idea. Chris wrote a story. Ryan wrote a story, and Chris wrote an introduction. And um, I actually sent it to some publishers, and they weren't interested. Maybe they would be now. But I want you to read the introduction. Okay, sounds good. What are you looking at me for? Read it. (laughs) Okay. In March of 2011, I entered my 14th treatment center for heroin, cocaine, and alcohol abuse. A week before checking in, my brother and sister had picked me up in Harlem. In a blackout, I had boarded a bus from Boston and decided to reinvent my life in New York City. 
Within days, my money had gone into my arm. I was homeless and trying to sell my last possession, a dead cell phone that I had found on the street. This falls on the mild end of the spectrum of disasters I had been responsible for over the years. At the new rehab, I left my unopened dollar store packages of white t-shirts, boxers, and sweatpants on my bed and immediately went outside for a cigarette. The most authentic and genuine expressions of rehab patients can be found in the designated smoking area. Nearly a decade of shuffling around the country at a wide range of treatment centers has taught me this. There is the mother who extravagantly laments losing custody of her child due to drug charges during group, who then asks a client to cheek his or her meds for that night. Or there is the husband who cherishes the unconditional love of his wife and then brushes arms and bats eyes with females in between puffs of his cigarette. And then there are those whose behavior is consistent. They seemed to do better. I smoked off to the side and silently judged my peers for the roles they were playing, many of which I had engaged in, with, engaged in at some point. I spoke when spoken to and never volunteered much. What's the point, I figured. No one will keep in touch. Most will relapse and a few will die. I, wrote, I wore a smile, but behind it was a bitter contempt for the life I had been living and for the people who remained me, reminded me of myself. In steps, in steps Dave with his Marlboro Reds, big Jew nose, ear-to-ear smile, and a general likability. It was the worst. He puked the details of his life upon me, unaware that I had established myself as the silent observer. Or maybe I was the only one who would listen to him. As he cycled between stories of his daughter, his daughter's mother, rehab exploits, and heroin addiction, I started to enjoy our conversations. Dave could look at his life with an ironic sense of humor, smile upon his idiocy, but not lose sight of the gravitas 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 of addiction. I reciprocated with my own stories, and we enjoyed long belly laughs over topics that would repulse the average person. I felt better. I got better. Enter Ryan. He was a confused white boy with a giant Wu-Tang tattoo on his thigh. I'm not sure if it even qualifies as a tattoo. It looks more like a doodle that a disgruntled sixth grader would do during class to piss off the teacher. Addiction had taken a toll on Ryan. He was a lost soul with no sense of identity, or better slated, a plethora of identities that weren't his own. But we shared the common bond of addiction and humor. Ryan quickly joined in, throwing down his stories and laughing at his insanity. One might say Dobie was born in these conversations. However, they had been happening for decades in the common areas outside of 12-step meetings, in the smoking pits of rehabs, on the street between active addicts, or in chance encounters between two like-minded people. As the saying goes, the therapeutic value of one addict helping another is unparalleled, and for many of us, the means to that therapy is comedy and identification. Five years after meeting Dave and Ryan, I brought my laptop over to Dave's Lower East Side apartment in Manhattan and pushed record. Preparation was nil. What came out was a typical no-holds-barred smoking pit conversation, dialogue rife with using stories, open-ended drug discussion, and debate over addiction philosophy. Even with minimal promotion and personal anonymity, we started to get emails from a diverse group of people, from convicted bank robber robbers to people in long-term recovery. Everyone had a story to tell, and the uniting theme was humor. We realized that our darkly comedic and non-judgmental podcast format held a space that other recovery-centric shows couldn't fill. With the emails pouring in and our love for writing, it was a simple decision to write a book. However, we wanted to do something different. The market is saturated with addiction memoirs, each one attempting to outdo the next. 
The Dopey podcast informed our decision for a different sort of format, simple, self-contained stories that describe addiction. Chapters don't necessarily build upon each other. They are heavy in debauchery department, but have enough perspective and hope to provide meaning. This is a flow to the book, but readers can pick it up, open to any page, and dive in. It could be a coffee table book, but a more appropriate place might be next to the toilet. (laughs) Most importantly, the content appeals to the same audience as the podcast, people who are in active addiction, people who are in recovery, and people who like sensational, crazy stories. Right. So I just got chills about 20 times reading that. I almost started crying. I know. It's like fucking hell. Um, Chris had this dream of this book. Fucking going, Such a good to, idea. going to rehabs. Like, it's basically, he was like, when we were in rehab the last time together, everybody had fucking Nick Chef tweak. Right. And everybody had scar tissue. And everybody just sent it around the rehab. And, like, he wanted us to have a dopey book sent yeah. around the rehab. And maybe I'll get back to it. You know, sure. you know the publishers. And I have a couple of Chris's stories um, that would obviously go in. And I have a bunch of other stories. But the point is that Chris, like, he was so smart mm. and so funny and uh, and knew what he wanted this to be. Um, and he really wanted it to, to become a literary purpose. It's like he wanted to be a writer so bad. Uh, He's a good writer. He wrote for Salon. He wrote for Vanity Fair. He wrote a science fiction novel that he might or might not have finished. Right. You know, he, um, he was a smart guy and... Um, what was so what I love so much about what he wrote, and I, it, it, a lot of things were clicking for me as I was reading. I've never read that before, and it, it now makes Dopey look even more clear to me. Is is that he talks about how so many parts of recovery, obviously we have talked about, comes in the connection, but that the smoking section outside a 12 step meeting or the you know the people smoking outside of the, you know the rehabs when everyone's just kind of hanging out in the smoking section like that's maybe where even more of the work is taking place cuz that's where the relationships are starting and that's where the bonds have started right. and that is almost more powerful than the actual program or work itself obviously not to take away from it but that's kind of what i think chris is saying about dopey and I thought that, I mean, so that's, really, that's a really cool um, connection. The really cool thing about it to me is when he wrote that, we were getting, you know, a, a, a 50th of the response that we get now. Mm. You know, the number of people that listen there was such a small number of people compared to the number that listen now, but it was so meaningful to us. And we felt like we were throwing seeds out in a field <laughs> and that they would start popping up. And now... The show is still small by sure. by podcast standards, but the field is definitely blossoming, yeah. and that's what the Dopey Nation is, and that's what we saw today in Dopey Day yeah. was what Chris was talking yes. about actually happening. Now, uh, the past two years, the first one we did this show at uh, Chris's wake uh, mm-hmm. at an Airbnb with Chris's best friends, and the next year we went. I went to Great Barrington to talk to them again. Right. And this year, and that we didn't even do it for, yeah, we did. We did it for this day. Um, this year, I wanted it because of COVID and I didn't know how people were going to respond and get together or not get together. I knew that Chris's family um, was on Long Island. They're in the Hamptons. And, um, and I talked to his sister every once in a while. And I, was, I asked her, did she think that 
participating in an episode of Dopey would be something that her parents wanted mm, to do. Mm-hmm. And I was expecting her to say no. Right. And she You said, were surprised. I was very surprised. Um, I was very surprised. And I was touched and I was scared. Right. Um, and I've driven out to that place in Southampton 20 times. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And every time I drove out, I would leave at like dusk. And I would be really excited because it would be I'd get to leave our little family bubble behind and go hang out with. Got Chris. a break from us to go have fun with Chris. Go hang out, eat Parmigiana. Yeah, you know, there was a great I remember. Italian I remember, place. and I'm home, and you know, okay, breastfeeding and with colicky no, baby. Pre, it was pre that Chris uh, died right when okay. the baby was born. No, you were chilling with Nora. You were snuggling in bed, eating right. ice cream, whatever. Don't paint this picture <laughs> breastfeeding and stuff. But the point is, I would go out there and we would have the best time. Like I just remember. You know, me smoking outside of their house, us eating like these different meals with broccoli rob and bread and ice cream. And I'd bring all these chocolate bars and and I'd play music and we'd be on the phone with people. And we'd always do it in the winter because nobody was around. Right. And it was like we were in a bubble and there'd be snow everywhere. And it's like off this weird road and you have to drive down this long driveway. And after we finished, every time... Chris was nervous because I was not a good driver. He would back my car out of the long driveway Aww. because he didn't want me to crash into his parents' edges. Um, so when I drove out there, and, and, and this summer and last summer, we've had other different events out by Quag or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the preserve. It's all down that same road. And I always think of Chris whenever I drive down right. Sunrise Highway. And, um, and the idea of going there was... Very scary to me right. and uh, and very uncomfortable and sad, but scary because like... You mean to me with his parents? To go back to the house to not see Chris. But part of me thought he'd be there. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like you never, you're ever like in a situation and you kind of just wish you could go back to a place where the thing was still there. Sure. You know, like, like I feel that all the time about so many things and I definitely had a little feeling of that. When I drove out to yeah, the Yeah, that had to have been very surreal. Yeah, and I listened to Howard Stern on the way out there interviewing Jim Carrey, and it was this amazing interview, you know, like, uh, and I think Jim Carrey's sober, and it was just, like, a really cool interview. And um, I was just, like, kind of, like, trying to get out of my head right. to get ready to talk to them, and I, I had nothing prepared, like, zero. Well, there was a lot of anxiety heading your way on that trip because there was, you know... The, the sort of there's a bit of a traumatic experience of going back to that house knowing Chris wouldn't be there. And then there was also the feeling of meeting his parents to talk about Dopey, which you weren't sure how they, what they felt about it. Not to so mention you didn't just really to talk know, about Chris. And to talk about Chris. So you, you, you were kind of going into a pretty intense um, environment. It was very tense. and it was I remember like, when Dave was leaving here to go there, he was... You know, I could tell that he was very wired. Like, it was like, I don't want to say you were, I think you were a little bit excited just because you were going to interview Chris's parents, which is pretty powerful. But I think that there was a lot of emotions running through you and you weren't sure how to manage them. I was excited because their story has never been on Dopey. They've never been included in the show. I've met his mother twice. I met her once out there in the summertime, and she was lovely and sweet yeah. and stuff. And I met the, his father only at the wake and the funeral. 
and um, and when I met the f- when I met the mother the first time, she was kind of like giving me the kind of half side eye because she knew we were like these idiot kind of I'm an idiot forty four year old man and he's an idiot thirty three year old man or whatever. And uh, and we're like in the pool house telling old drug stories like while she's <laughs> making country time lemonade in the fucking kitchen, yeah. you know. Um, and then when I met them at the funeral, like they they were so hurt and and yeah. broken, but they were like taken with the fact that Chris had left a legacy in Dopey, right? And um, and I just thought that their voice was important for our show, and I thought absolutely, and and I thought that it was important for. For this year's Dopey Day, for this year's this Christmas in July thing, so I'm just gonna play it. Yeah. All right. So this is a, a strange and weird and and painful thing where we're we're acknowledging it's been two years since Chris died, and I drove out to Southampton to his family's house where I, where I used to come out here to record, and I'm with Peter Arden, his mother, and Arden, his sister. And thank you for letting me come, and thank you for coming on the show. And um, the bottom line with this whole thing is that Dopey was Chris's show. It was mine and Chris's show, and I have never taken Chris's name off of the show in any capacity, and I talk about Chris on every episode. Every episode ends with toodles for Chris, regardless. And and I think uh, it's very, very important that your story is told on Dopey and Chris didn't want you to tell your story while he was alive on Dopey. And I, I find that to be weird now. Because I remember when you were... We, I came out here and I met Chris's mom, Arden. And, uh, and you were in the kitchen right. making food. And we were in the pool house recording asinine episode. You know, stupid show. And I said to, to Chris, why don't we have your mom come on the show? And he's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, and I wish we had been able to do it then. That's so funny. I didn't know that. Well, my dad was on the show. My mm-hmm. dad's on the show constantly now. Um, That's great. Well, I think he's funny. And he know, knew me before this all happened. Mm-hmm. And he knew me through it. And the audience is attached to him now. And, and he's got, I mean, I wouldn't call it wisdom, but he's got something. <laughs> something that the audience likes. And um, I, I wish that you could have come on and you could have come on when Chris was alive because it could have been fun instead of this. But it is remarkable that Chris and I started something as borderline stupid as Dopey and it, it, it wound up helping so many people. You know, did that surprise... I mean, when he first told you about that he was going to do this thing, what was your take? Be honest. Be honest. We, to be honest with you, there was such a part of a... Uh, for me, anyway, there was such a part that said, I... And I think maybe a lot of parents would feel that way, but I'm not sure. But it was sort of, I wish that world that he was in would be in the past and in a closet and he was moving on to stage two and stage three. Um, that would put that at that as sort of, that was a time in my life. I don't, I'm not identifying with that anymore, which I was so wrong about, but but that's what you wish as a parent because you want it done. You want him to to do what to move on in his life. So um, when he said about Dopey, I thought uh, when I first heard the first few episodes, I said I can't listen to this. This is you know this is this they're irreverent. They're laughing about something that we suffered so much with, and so did Chris. I I, I can't. 
it was only way later that I learned, and even after his death, when we saw all the comments um, in the book for, on his uh, after his obituary, that we realized how many people. Chris didn't talk to us a ton about that. He talked with Arden, but he he probably felt like I don't know if my parents want to hear that story, or I'm not quite sure what you would say why he thought maybe not to have me or Peter come on it, probably because he thought we weren't going to be happy about it. Um, so that was really how we felt at the time, and I think it was because you were trying to get out of the ditch you were in, and this represented sliding back in the ditch in our mind, and not knowing the therapeutic effect it would have on so many others that weren't going to be the guy that signs up for a rehab because his mother and father said to do it, maybe these people that had no intentions of it. So it was only way later that I found that out, and I think Peter's the same. I'm not sure. I just thought it was a waste of time. You know, I, I said, he'll grow out of it. He'll stop it. This little thing will last a couple months, and then he'll go do what else he does. And it was only after he did it, the two of you had done it for three or four years that I found that this really means something to him. Mm-hmm. And you're thrilled that he's sticking to something, yeah. not just giving it up. And candidly, what Arden is saying is probably <clears throat> Chris had a more generous spirit than certainly I do. And he realized it might help other people. And to some extent, you get preoccupied with your own son and you want him to move on from the drug culture mm-hmm. and you really don't care about other people's children. And he thought it, yeah. he would thought better of helping people than we did. You, um, I was preoccupied with him and wasn't preoccupied with everybody else. And frankly, I was astonished it continued. And I, was, I was astonished at uh, how well it did and still mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, as I said, my initial response was he'll grow up and it won't happen anymore. Well, I think, you know, I, I, I know how I feel about it. And, and, I, and, I, and I have some recollection of how Chris felt about it. And maybe you can help me with this, Arden. Um, I feel like we didn't do it to help anybody. Yeah. Like, that was not why <laughs> we did it. Well, that makes more sense. Yes. <laughs> I had done my little uh, web series about Katz's, and um, the sound is weird, I'm sorry. I had done my little web series about Katz's, and Chris was really taken with it. And he was like, Dave, if, if, if you're going to do something else, I want to do it. I remember him talking about that. And, uh, and I said, well, Chris, you can't do anything. What, what am I going to do with you? And then I remembered I had this friend who had the idea to do a podcast about drug stories. And I was like, Chris, why don't we steal my friend's idea <laughs> and do a podcast about drug stories? And he was like, great. He's like, what do I do? And I said, uh, drive down to my apartment in Manhattan and we'll do it. And he drove down to my apartment and he was like, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I'm just going to hit record and then we're going to talk and you're going to tell a story and then we're going to talk and I'm going to tell a story. And um, it just, it was funny, you know, and it was fun. And it gave us, we, we, I mean, the most beautiful thing about Dopey, without it, forget the audience, forget mm-hmm. helping people, forget all that stuff. Chris and I met in rehab in 2011. Mm-hmm. We probably talked 10 times between 2011 and 2015. You know, 10 times. Once we started doing Dopey, we spoke every day. Every day from 2015 until the day he died, we talked. 
But before that, we probably spoke 10 times. We were always had meaningful conversations. You know, we spent a lot of time together at Mountainside, but Chris was also the kind of person that you could spend 10 hours with and then not see for four days. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like he, he would, he would yeah. come into your life yeah. and then he would run away. Um, so like when Dopey is a document of me and Chris becoming close friends, you know, it's our whole mm-hmm. friendship is, is the show. And, um, and he would tell me that, that he thought the show was helping people. And I would be like, I don't think it's helping anybody, but, but I know it's fun. And he yeah. would always say it is fun. And he would always say to me, I mean, he said to me the night before he died, uh, I just want this to be my career. I want, and, but you know, Chris was very good at telling people what they wanted to hear, and he knew how fixated on making Dopey successful and and a career. And the, I, I think that the the core was our fun, and then the uh, side effect was that it helped people. You know, and I think the only reason we did stick with it was because we had a lot of fun doing yeah. it. Um, and when you know the the priest at the funeral. Uh, said that he had never seen such messages from the world about anybody that he had, I don't know the right terminology for it, um, that he had with Chris. W- was that meaningful to you guys? Like, what did, that, what, did, what did that do to you guys at the time? I think the content of the emotional uh, comments that were made, that's what really, and, and Father Uni did say, parts read some things and say these were the some of the comments uh and i think the emotional content of from their heart about somebody helping and talking it it really hit our hearts and in one side we felt like this is fabulous and on the other side we said how did we not know this how did we not know this and if we thought after time went by and you thought about it that was so chris we would never know that he did the technical things for this. We would not know that he had that on the left hand that he was doing um, because he was never, he, would, he didn't like talking about himself and he didn't like, a, a, he, it was like it was expected if you said this is great. I mean, he, he told me in a basketball game, he was mortified, and, and I said, why? And he said, because all I could hear is you screaming out there, go, Chris, go, Chris. And he said, I, can you be quiet in the stands? And he just never liked any accolades or attention drawn to himself. So we shouldn't have been surprised, but we were both taken, taken back by how many comments and the kind of comments that were made. Um, so... Yes, it's always a surprise. There's always somebody that writes something. To this day, there's somebody that sends an email and gives a little piece of information that we didn't know about. And you do, you try and look for every little piece of information that you can find out. You find you you want every little piece that's missing. Um, and so when you see these comments that these people make about what Chris did, you think he never talked with about it with us and I I always wondered if it was a sense of himself or a sense of confidence in conjunction with I don't want to I don't want to get a star on my paper for this right what do you think Peter much the same I was astonished when I saw the volume of it and what they meant but he was always very self-effacing and it's too bad he wasn't alive to read the comments (laughs) even though he wouldn't if if he had read them he wouldn't have told us about them Right. <laughs> That's just the way he was. He just, uh, um, but I was surprised that so many people listened to the show, 
frankly, I haven't listened to much of it because I lived it, and I don't really want to hear it. Um, but I'm, 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 I'm sort of thrilled that he did it, and the, the longer it gets, it's a great legacy for him. Well, the, the crazy thing to me, and it's just, it's very bittersweet. You know, obviously, Chris wasn't my son. He was my friend who I shared this, pro- we, you know, I, we shared this project, you know, and, and it was every day, and it was our heart and soul, and how do we make it better, and how do we affect more people, and how do we get better guests, and how do we make it more fun? And, uh, and, and now I hear from, you know, people that I don't know who just started listening yesterday, and they get to know Chris you know, from then, as mm. though he was still like Alive. they get to yeah. know him. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. you know, and, and and like I know why you don't listen because he's mm. gone. He's, it's too painful. Even when he was here, I didn't want to listen. Well, but that's all. That's all. <laughs> Different reason. You were going through it. It wasn't all that funny. You know, well, that's it, what my dad. My dad. My dad loved. What my dad likes about the show is the 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 love of the show, mm-hmm. the fun, mm-hmm. the laughs, the the the. Obvious friendship and 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 laughter, you know the shtick. My dad loves. Yeah. Um, he's like he wishes it wasn't about drugs, you yeah. know. Sure, sure. And and it's like and I, I I struggle listening to the show because it's painful for me. So I I mean the difference between me and Chris was that I wanted the show to be huge, but I didn't want anyone I knew to listen to it. <laughs> and Chris didn't care about the show being big, but he told everybody to listen to it. He would, and he would like friend everybody on Facebook and tell them to listen to it. So he like, and he also, if he saw all the comments, he would have acted like it meant nothing to him, but it would have gone right I to his, his head. head. That's a good. That's a good. That's point. great. That's he, great to hear. He would have loved loved the attention. Arden, you're being unusually quiet. <laughs> I know. That's what I. That's unusual. Well, I think. Well, they. I think actually both mom and dad have said said it really well about Chris. I mean, I think Chris was a little bit of a. He was sort of a um, contradictory fellow. So on the one hand, he had no ego, and on the other hand, he actually did have an ego about you know what he accomplished. He just, I think, at times was too nervous that he would fail at something to ever voice like I want this. You know, I and we're. It's very interesting because we're very close, as you know. Um, and I loved every part of him. I was close to him even in his worst moments and and at some of his best moments. And I think for me. I didn't. I used to tell him like I. We have very a lot of similarities in our personalities, and then there's just parts of your mindset I don't understand. Like I always was very clear about saying I'm going to set this goal. I think I'm worthy of achieving this. And I remember a few years into his sobriety, him telling me that he wanted to be a therapist or a sober coach. And I, having run a business in this industry, I I didn't roll my eyes, um, but I sort of said to him like, Look, I think it's a great goal, but that's not all you can do. You could do so many other things if you wanted to. And I, I don't think ultimately his quest to become a therapist was motivated because this is all I'm worth, but I do think he struggled with, for whatever, you know, the therapeutic term I've heard is imposter syndrome. So I'm worthy of a lot and I have a, and I'm a lot, very confident on the outside, but internally I question what I'm actually going to be able to achieve. And so I think for, for Dopey, I totally agree with everything you've said. I don't think, I think for him it was a happy accident that it got as popular as it did. I do think he took a lot of pride in the last couple of years of it actually impacting people. I think his decision to eventually become a therapist was not just a, I'm a guy in recovery, I could help, but really like, I think I actually could make a difference. I mean, not that the first motivation is a bad one, but I think he really could see progress with people he had worked with. And my belief was that he would be 
quite honestly, as a clinical professional, unstoppable because of his personal experience, his intentions to really help people, and because he was quite smart and, and adapted to some of the clinical material well. So I, I always found him, um, I think part of the reason we were close is because I found him so interesting. And I do think he always had more so than my other brother, Matt, and I did, uh, a creative energy about him. I mean, he tried to write a book at one point. Yeah. You know, he he always kind of had, he wanted a voice in the world to be heard. And he was never going to be, in my opinion, I don't think he had the confidence, frankly, or enough grounding to be one of those speakers in AA circles that you sat back and said, like, this guy is the God. I mean, there's a lot of those that I've seen in self-help meetings. I don't think that was going to be his path. And I think this gave him a way to feel like he was having impact. He could feel the impact directly by messages and by the traction the show was getting. And I think to your earlier point, he had an authentic connection with you. And there, I have to say, the reason... A lot of people do things in this world, whether it's write a book together, start a podcast together, start a company together, is because people enjoy working with each other. And I think this podcast was as much a quest for him to have an authentic connection with yet another person in recovery. He had a few of those, but he didn't have, you know, some people in recovery have circles of 30, 40 people they're in touch with all the time. He didn't have that. And so there were a few of you in his life many of you who I've been in touch with for the over the years, who I know he trusted their judgment and he got something out of that relationship. And I think that this show was a quest for that too. Right, right. It's, um, it's nuts. I mean, um, I know like uh, when, when he told me that he was going to go for his um, PsyD, like uh, it was almost like he, as though he was a fisherman that grew up near the water. You know what I mean? He was around addiction so much. He he learned every aspect of this thing, and he's like, "What the hell else am I going to do?" Almost at first, because mm-hmm. he was like, "If he like, you know how like in your profession, if you know the profession, every centimeter of it, it's like you'd be a fool not to try to pick it up." Sure. Because he didn't want to sell things. He didn't want to be a, a realtor. He didn't want to be. He wanted to do what he knew, and he knew addiction, and he had been around however many treatments and however many addicts, and like he and he certainly didn't like being the inspirational speaker at a meeting. Like he was like, I don't even share at meetings. He was like, I just listen because he felt like if he shared, he would be wanting to be self centered and wanting the accolades. Which is, I think, the other beautiful thing about Dopey was the anonymity that mm-hmm. we could enjoy, we could bask in this thing without it being us it being this it was like you know and i think that was great for us um when when i'm just gonna throw go back here for a second like when did you realize that he had a a crippling addiction uh when he first went to high school he had had first of all uh, he drank when he was in about the eighth grade and that by itself tells you there's a problem coming down the road when it starts that early. Uh, he had drugs with some of his friends probably in freshman or sophomore, freshman year of high school. Maybe it was even the eighth grade there. We sort of, um, since I'm in recovery myself, I sort of said, well, he's going to school. He's playing two or three sports. His grades well, not, might not be up to uh, what his brain power is, but they're pretty good. And he seems okay. And where it came off the wheels when is he when he graduated from high school and went down to Georgetown. Then all of a sudden, um, 
he uh, went off the rails. We went down there, must have been first quarter of sophomore year, and his roommate said he was just sitting in his room drinking all day long. And that's, you know, we sort of knew things were off, but we never knew to the extent they were off. We took him out of school. And in those days, this is, you know, this is probably 12 or 15, probably 15 years ago, the industry, the recovery industry wasn't as well defined as it is now. There were no pro, there were no companies like Arden's company. There weren't a lot of people telling you what to do. There weren't as many inpatient and outpatient. And so we went and got an educational consultant of all things that tell us to go to Sierra Tucson. But we were just grasping at straws. But the first indication he had a problem was probably, I'll say the first indication that we acknowledged he had a serious problem uh, was probably first quarter of sophomore year. And um, I remember he told the story of, of, of going to Georgetown, and, and, and the, the way he told it was when he saw that his roommate could drink all day, he yeah. knew that he could too. Yeah. You know, and yeah. um, which is funny. It's kind of like the inversion of. Well, yeah, what he, Chris had this idea, you know, and Arden alluded to it, that he wanted to be, he had a very un, upside down personality. He wanted to do the least amount of work and yet get a C-plus because that would impress everybody. So he didn't want to be patted on the back. He wanted people to stand in awe that this kid doesn't do anything, and he's still going through school. And he had So it was a very quirky personality. Mm-hmm. It was tough to explain to anybody, and I still don't get it. I, I think I could relate a lot to, to him. Him and I had a very, I think, similar universal view, which is like you wanted maximum results from minimal effort so people could think you're amazing. Yes. Whereas if yes. you tried and you failed, yes. that's exactly, then, yes. then that's where exactly, were you? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, um, no, we definitely, we had a lot, a lot of bad things in common, obviously. Um, but... Uh, he 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 struggled obviously, and he and he fought over and over and over. Like um, that must have been, you know. How many times did you think you were out of the woods, or was it only at the end that you felt that way? No, he had a a period in the end. It was about four and a half years. Sure, uh, but he had a period before that that was three years long without drinking, and um, we thought. At that point, that things had changed, and that that it looked good from what we had before. But then, when we saw the last four and a half years, we said, "Oh no, this is it." Not only did he, does he seem different, he has a purpose in life. He has things that he enjoys. He's asked us for things. We didn't talk about a side D. He came up with that. He applied. He went ahead. Whereas before, it was Chris. Come on, you know, you've got to do well in school. What are you doing or whatever? It wasn't any of that. In fact, it was the opposite. Peter had said to him, which I'm sure shocked Chris, is, "Don't do any of this for me. Do." What you have to do, number one, is sobriety. So you pick what what will keep you there. And he picked it all. So we we felt the, the last time that he was really on the road. And I think before the three-year period, we had a year where he, he uh, did yoga every day uh, after speaking to a doctor that he met at McLean's, after he went through detox and had to go through a two-week program. Um, and the the doctor had said do ashtanga yoga, and he told him what 
what place to even go to, what teacher to even, and Chris went there every day for a year. And that was a change. So we always had these hopes, but after that fell, then you you were worried about it during the three years, but then it looked like, oh no, this is longer, so this might be it. And I remember Matthew, um, his brother, saying, um, maybe one of the things you have to think of is that Chris might get well for a period of time and you might have to go then two years with him off and then three years, then the three years becomes four years sober, then it, then he goes off, then the four years becomes six years and that's it may be the way it has to be for a while. But we refuse to believe that. We always thought, no, this will be it. He'll be, he'll be fine. Um, and it's just the way it went for us. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, like I said, I spoke to him every day for that period of time, you know, in some way. We texted or we spoke or whatever. And, um, and, and I mean, one of the more painful aspects of this for me is that I've gotten thousands of emails from people saying that I should have known that this was happening. You know, um, being an addict in recovery myself and, and being an addict, period, like I should have been able to see the signs in Chris, you know, that, and, and frankly, maybe I should have been able to, but I, I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. cause I, I was under the impression that, um, cause I had a lot of things going on in my life, you know, right before he died, we, we had our second child, we had bought a house and my best friend had died, you know, that was right, right there. Um, and Annie, when Annie called me and told me, I said, don't, I, I thought she was lying. Cause, cause Chris had called me the night before, probably out of his mind on drugs, but telling me that Annie was crazy and Annie this and Annie that. And so, and I believed Chris, you know what I mean? And, uh, and the day he, the day she called me that he was dead, he had texted me at six thirty that morning. So I take, she texted me in the middle of the night. Can you check on Chris? So I woke and I was asleep. So I woke up at six thirty in the morning and I texted Chris. And at six thirty one, he texted me back. The day he died, he said, "I'm okay, not great, but alive. I'll call you later." That's what he texted me at six thirty one that day. So when Annie called me and told me that, I just didn't believe her. I, I thought it wasn't true, and I, I called you uh, to, to confirm it because I I I could not believe this had happened. Like. And um, I had gotten a call earlier that summer from Ryan uh, because cause Chris had called Dylan and thought it was me, okay, which seemed very weird. So I called Chris, and he didn't write me back. And it was, it was right when Todd died, and I was sure Chris was dead because I was just scared. I was waiting tables at Katz's, and I was terrified. And then I called Annie, and Chris called me immediately because he got so upset that I called Annie like, because in reality, he was using, and he didn't want anyone to know. But he he made me feel like I had done the wrong thing because I was going to worry people. But I said to him, if you're sober, what do you care about if I'm worrying people? Yeah. And I should have known that, but I didn't. So it makes me sad to hear, honestly, that folks have commented on that. And I know that there's part of them that are being protective over my brother, which I love. I would say, you know, and thank God no one said it to me. I mean, I, I run a company in the addiction field, and I always say Chris was the best teacher for the types of cases that we get because if you believe, as it's defined now in the clinical manual, that addiction is a spectrum, Chris, in my opinion, was 
a nine out of a 10 scale. Um, whereas I'd say more families that we see, and we see some pretty acute cases tend to be in the six to eight range. Right. So I think one of the things about Chris, because he was so smart, and I say this to parents now, you know, if you have someone who's very naturally intelligent and they have an addiction issue, it's more complicated because they tend to think, one, they can outsmart people, two, they don't really buy the self-help meetings. Even if there's not a religious objection to the, to the higher power, there's a, I'm special and I can work around this. And I think in Chris's case, he was extraordinarily manipulative up to his last days of having you see what you want. He wanted you to see. And so I'll just, you know, 48 hours before he died, we had, I had heard from Annie and we were here in our home in Southampton. She said he's acting odd. And, you know, when she described what was going on, my gut instinct was this is a problem. We got on the phone with him with Annie in the background and he started getting very agitated. And at one point I said to him a quote that he had said years ago, which is, you told me given what you've put our family through that at any point I could ask you about your sobriety and you would never get upset. And you're clearly getting upset, which makes me think something has changed. And he got a little quiet, but you know, our company surprised him with a drug test. And just to give you a sense of his level of manipulation, and I say this with all the love in the world for my brother, he called me after my employee went and drug tested him. And it was a total surprise test. I said to my employee, don't tell him you're coming, show up, just arrive. He called me afterwards and he said, yep, so I got drug tested. It's going to come back clean. And he went on and on about all these other issues in his life. And I called my father. This was Monday. He died Tuesday, right after the call. And I said, I don't think he's using I think he's stressed out about all sorts of different things because that's the side he wanted you to see. And I think that for the families we deal with, for other people I know have lost someone, that's the scariest part about addiction. And I I think, frankly, that's where the wisdom of AA, I'm not a member of AA, but I've gone to a lot of meetings, but the you know, the, the serenity prayer comes in because it's something you can't control. I couldn't control Chris's impulse to only show me part of him. Had he called me at 11 at night the night before he was fighting with Annie, he knows I would have been at his house. We would have had six companions if we needed. We would have done whatever it took to keep him well, but that's not the mindset he was in. And, and he was very clever at showing you just enough and knowing in the past what's gotten him off the hook. And that I think that's the hardest part for families to accept. And the only thing, I, I, for me, the only solace I have had in his death is knowing that up till he died, the only message he heard from our family is, we told him the day we thought something was wrong on that conference call, my mom, I will never forget it, said it, if, if there has been a relapse, it's okay. You just need to tell us. We will help you get better. Um, and, and it's not that every family can afford not to have tough love messages. I understand the value of those. But as a family member who's lost somebody, I'm very grateful that he heard love up till the moment he died. Because as a family, we feel like we tried everything. And, and we, I go to bed knowing like he heard that we cared about him, even though I don't think he did it intentionally and it just happened. Yeah, it's 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 brutal. Um, whenever I when I was dealing with it in the beginning, because I was not under the impression that this could have happened, I, I got the because Chris like he was operating at such a high level in terms of his mm-hmm. own life. Mm-hmm. You know, he was in a committed, loving relationship. Yeah. He had a, yeah. a job that mm-hmm. he he liked. He looked good. He was wearing khaki pants mm-hmm. and Brooks Brothers mm-hmm. shirts every day. He. Um, was participating in every aspect of his life, 
but he wasn't going to meetings. Mm-hmm. He wasn't, and he said it on the show. I, 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 we talked about it on the show, and I said, I said, Chris, you have all these things going for you, and and, and we were and we were joking because I I didn't think that what happened could happen, and I said, well, what the last time you got to this place? what was your life like when you relapsed and you had three years? And he mm-hmm. said, he said, oh, I was dicking around with my girlfriend and, and working on this and working on that and not going to meetings. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I said, well, what's, what are you doing now? You know, and I said it as a joke. And he like, he kind of laughed. But the, the and, and it's a mystery that we'll never uncover. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like irrelevant. But like, do you think it was that injury in Anguilla that triggered this thing? Yeah. It might be the trigger. The, but he had been around long enough into enough treatment that he knew once he took something, he was doomed. It's almost with a, if you're, you know, I'm an alcoholic, and I know that if I took a drink, there was no way I could stop it. And he knew that that had been taught to him for 13 or 15 years, that you have no control over it once you start so maybe the injury in Anguilla allowed him to to get some kind of drug, but he knew he shouldn't be taking that drug. And he knew if he, as soon as he did, he should have gone back and talked to somebody. So it might have been in the back of his mind, I honestly think he wanted to do it, he wanted to take it. And the itch, was, someone once described it as an itchy shirt, the itch was always there, with some of it's a little bit less, but it was always he was always going to have to scratch it. And you can always point and say he never would have relapsed if he hadn't done this and he hadn't been hurt. I'm not so sure it wouldn't just come down the pike. And we, you know, at least that's my opinion. I, I always had this these thoughts, and your mind goes crazy when something like this happens, and you then have to step back. But I always had this thought that, you know, Christopher and I were in Japan together. And there's something he always wanted to go to a place, and so did I, and and so we went. Um, And there was one afternoon that he ran up 100 steps to get to this sort of quasi-temple type thing. But he ran, and I was having trouble walking up the 100 steps, but he, he went so fast and then came down, and he hurt his back. And then we we had to cancel some of the couple of things that we were supposed to do the last couple of days because of that. Soon after that trip, then he he took Suboxone and thought, well, I you know I'm going to feel better and and that'll be fine. When I heard that he did some kind of karate kick in Anguilla, um, and then wound up taking some pain reliever pills, the thought occurred to me that maybe he at that time lost his resolve for some reason that I'll never know. We don't know. And I almost thought he did those things on purpose. I almost thought that in his mind he was starting to sort of uh, descend. Create the problem. And create the problem, yes, exactly. That that if I do this, then my back will pull out. And he kept saying my back, and, you know, we got these heating pads and all these things from the the hotel uh, people. But I always thought... Could that have been that that was his cry to do something so that he could create the problem and take something, and that he was he was already getting the feeling like he he was itchy and irritable? What are you going to say, Arden? I was just going to add one quick thing, which is I think I, I can see the logic on that. I don't like to think that way with the second 
relapse. The first one, I agree on the running up the stairs in Japan. On the second one, I always like to think it was just this coincidence. But I think the other thing I will say is this comes back to him being smart and thinking he can outsmart things. I think in the journey of his recovery, he saw people who were sober forever. He saw people who were sober and relapsed. He saw people who were sober and didn't have a full-blown relapse, but maybe tried to bring reintroduce alcohol or reintroduce pills. And Chris, I think, I think there was a part of Chris. I mean, he was always fascinated by ayahuasca and psychedelics. I think there was a part of Chris that almost hoped that he would be able to use something small. And I think when he when this happened, regardless of whether it was intentional or not, he truly believed in his heart that he would be able to figure it out. And that's that's where I say like the intelligence factor, like I think again for me the the beauty in in the self-help meetings are that the phrases are simple. Um, and you know, I used to say to him, like he would go in and a speaker would talk, and especially in his early days when he was sort of lacking insight into how serious the problem was, he would sort of roll his eyes and say like, well, yeah, I mean, but yeah, this guy, I mean, he's not, he, he, would, he would find some way to insult the speaker to me. And I used to say, you can say a lot of things and maybe he hasn't achieved what you hope to in your lifetime, but he stayed sober. And so I think sometimes he, he always had this feeling like he could find like some little crack that he would be able to manipulate. And I also do think he was impacted by peers who had longstanding recovery. And so if he saw them do something that was experimental, he would almost think like, maybe I can, maybe I can try it. I, I, I remember when it happened, like, again, all of his success, you know, like it, it and it spoke to me. And, and we, we talked about fentanyl on the show a million times and he would always say the same thing about it which was it's a good thing there wasn't that much fentanyl out there when we were out there or we'd be dead he would say that and i i never acknowledge and another thing that chris and i said all the time on the show was that we never thought we could die from it you know hmm. we said that on the show all the time because both of us had used such large amounts mm-hmm. of of heroin of opioids of 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 drugs you know of of, of deadly combinations and, and amounts that you you think it would kill you so you don't think it can you know sure. however whenever he would talk about fentanyl he would say isn't it great that there was no fentanyl out there and then he maybe once or twice he said but i wonder what it's like i heard that too and, and i forgotten what it was for i don't know if it was for school or for shatterproof or something but he made that comment and it, i remember because a red flag went right up in my mind, because he said something like, "This, you know, I, I'm very interested in what this is like." Not, not those exact words, but that's what I got out of it. And I remember thinking, "Oh my gosh, he still has this on his mind to try the new thing." Well, and and it's supposed to be so much stronger. And 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 the thing that that really I, I took away from everything that had happened was like in 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 Alcoholics Anonymous, they say. If you follow this whole thing, these promises come true, and and you don't you don't fear financial instability, and you 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 know you have a better life. They promise you if you do everything, they promise you a better life. And he had that better life. The promises had come to him, and I think he really wanted to have the better life and get high. Like I think that yeah. really yeah. appealed to him. I think I think I mean, most people like that. I really don't think he believed. That he was powerless over it. I thought just what Arden said. He thought he could out, out think it, and I also think that 
like a lot of people do, is after a certain period of time, you're almost immune to the itch. And when I said it's an itchy sweater, that the itch goes away and it's, you don't have to worry about it anymore. And I think he felt that way also, that he, after four and a half years, he'd sort of conquered it. He's smart enough. He's not going to, he's not going to go over the, not going to fall over the edge. And candidly, it hadn't killed him to date, so I think he could get away with it. Uh, we changed over the time when we were first there. You thought you'd clean him up and put him back in school. By the time you've been through it 10 years, all I wanted to do was keep Mount Great Barrington with Colin and Ted and Dylan and just say, get a life, get a picket fence. And just, he was lucky with Annie. She was great to him. But I think in, underneath it all, he never really, and most people don't, I don't think, really believe that it was going to kill him. I really believe that he thought he could outthink alcohol or the addiction. And until you get in that, your head. And I, as an alcoholic, I know, I just know my, there is no way in God's green earth I could take a sip and not die six or nine months later. It just, it, I just, I really believe that. And I don't think many people believe that. And I know he didn't. I think he still thought he could skirt around the edge of it. I don't think I believed that it would kill me, but I knew that if I put a drug into my body that I would lose my kids. Yeah. And like that was enough for me to be like, I'm not doing it. I, I, that would kill you. That's a form of death. I was 10 years older than Chris. I'm, you know, I, 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 you know, I was born 10 years before Chris was born. So I had a different set of sort of yeah. consequences for me. And also, like when I was 33 or whatever, like I was using and I was a total mess. You know what I mean? So like to, I can't put myself in his, his shoes on the whole thing. Um, have you have you been back to meetings ever since this happened? I'm sort of different. No, um, uh, when I I went to AA because I think that, you know AA to me is the godsend. I mean, it's the greatest thing in the world. What I have done, I happen to be a fairly uh, a Catholic, and so what I do is I go to mass every day, and it's not a religious thing. Every and day, I, every day. I mean, I don't go Saturdays. That's my day off. And it's not a religious thing. It's just I, every time I walk in there, and it's only half an hour, and I don't pay attention to what anybody's saying, I know why I'm there. And it's just it's because it reminds me I'm not drinking anything. And I think you almost have to do that. And on a scale of a 1 to 10, maybe I was a 4 and Chris was a 9.5. But you have to have a daily remand forever. And I think what happened to Chris, he strayed away from it. And I, I don't say you have to go to AA for 34 years but I have to. I think you have to have something that daily, you know, that tells you the benefits of being sober. And for me, that's it. Right. And I know he knew the benefits, though. It's just I think it, he forgot. I, I think I th- what you said. He wanted all the benefits. Plus, he wanted to be a little bit high. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's what happened to him. And and he thinks and he was too smart because he thought he could get away with it. And if you're really into AA or anything, you know, it's going to get you sooner or later. Well, he he had the. I, I mean, Chris was so helpful in my own recovery. When we when we started doing Dopey, I mean, put it like this. I hadn't talked to Chris for years, okay? And we we both met. We were both, you know, heroin addicts at Mountainside. He had been there for a few months. I just got there. We hit it off. We were very similar, but we were very different. We we enjoyed well, we, we enjoyed telling each other stories and making each other laugh. And then for the next four years, I relapsed and he had his shit together. He relapsed and I had my shit together. Mm-hmm. And when it was the summer and I and my you know I got clean in August, the August before we started doing dopey. And and I knew Chris had 2 years when when we started. And I would call Chris every day 
because I, if Chris could fucking keep it together, oh, sure. I was like, maybe he could help me. And he did. You know, and, and before that, I would smoke pot. Like, I was a heroin addict, and I would smoke pot. And he'd be like, li- I'd be like, I don't know if I'm that bad. And he'd be like, listen, if you don't do heroin again, you'll know you can smoke pot. But if you do heroin, you'll know you can't smoke pot next time. That was a great criticism. And I, and, <laughs> and I, and I thought he was, it was very smart. But, like, the, my point was that when we started Dopey, he had two and a half years, and I had four months. And I got my four months because of him. You know what I mean? Mm. Like he like he talked to me every day and and it was his take on addiction, which is like kind of this you're as far out as you can be. And he destroyed his life with to an inch of his life before that. Like when when Colin and Ted and that drunk driving and the vomit and all that shit. And um, and he was so grateful to have a life. And I remember when he finished his online degree and he was working at Kripala and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And he was just a person. You know what I mean? He wasn't the most special person. Mm-hmm. He was he was the worker among workers yeah. in that moment. Yeah. And he felt it. You know, and I think as he became the special person, he kind of forgot all that stuff. But the real the weird question, and we can never answer it, is like he told you the night before the drug test came back that he was clean. What do you think was in his head when he's telling that story? You could you, first try. He said, um, I remember that very well because I was, one of us had to call him. So I called him. And after Arden said that at first, before everybody got on the phone, and I said, You absolutely hate, which is true, a phony. You absolutely hate it if someone's talking about something that involves you on the side and you're in the background and can't hear what you're saying. So I'm asking you straightforward, oh, you have, have you used drugs? And he came back with the, oh, come on, Mom, no, I'm not. Um, he got on that phone and had this idea that, once again, he could fool everybody, and he did. I mean, he, when Arden said it, it was, you know, everyone. Everyone that was close to him said he wasn't using. And we called and said, we're, we're getting some red flags. Is, is it, is, should we or not? And then he would argue like a lawyer, like he always did, and, could, and had a persuasive argument, and because he was bright, he, he could convince you. So in our mind, you know, when... Arden said that he said that we thought he didn't run from a drug test he didn't he didn't say the person that went in the house I I believe said something like the place looked neat he was sitting there there was no come on in there was nothing cocky and they didn't notice anything strange about him we thought we might have been wrong we actually thought at the time that we were wrong Um, and we weren't but I think the other thing with Chris is that um, I do believe he was someone riddled with shame for most of his life and, and embarrassment about what he had created for our family. And his way of showing it wasn't to beg and grovel, but it was to actually do the opposite, which was to like puff out his chest and, and double down, especially when he was using. And I, it's interesting now, I use him as an analogy. I, I just talked to uh, a husband of somebody the other day and was saying, you know, because he was complaining about the behaviors when his wife is drunk. And I was saying, you have to look at, in my opinion, the way family members get through this is they look at the person when they're using and the person when they're not is two different people. And you love the person always, but you love the person as they are when they're not. And you kind of have to just almost ignore the way you would ignore a child throwing a temper tantrum about candy they can't have. And so I, I think when he was lying, he was trying to 
um, and saying the drug test is going to come up clean. I mean, my opinion is I think he thought, I've got one more day of using, they're on to me, and then I'm going to go back into treatment. I truly believe that. Um, you know, I don't know if this is true. My personal philosophy is that I don't think he tried fentanyl deliberately. I think he actually was, it was laced with fentanyl, and it's not because I don't think he ever would. Um, but I don't, my personal belief is that I really don't think he was trying to die or anything like that. I think he thought he was going to have one big hurrah and that by that afternoon when Annie came back from class, he was going to have to come clean or when the drug test came back, he was going to have to go back into the the system. And I think there was an enormous amount of shame for somebody who had been four and a half years sober in AA, in and out, a sponsor and somebody working in the recovery industry about what that meant to his identity. Um, and it's interesting, I think, you know, mom and dad mentioned this earlier in the session, but I think mom's always been afraid that his only context for who he was was this person who abused substances, that like this, you know, he was this tough guy and that, that the drug persona was the only part of Chris. I think he was gradually starting to see he could be a partner to somebody, he could be a graduate of college, he could be a therapist, he could be a great employee, he could be a sibling and a son. But I think I think this is the hardest part for families. That I think was going to take another two, three, five years to come out as the identity that took over some of the pride he had and some of the other activities he engaged in. And it's not to say that I think Dopey would have continued to be a source of helping and I think he would have continued to grow into a complex person. But I think at the time when this hit, he was between two worlds of who he was in his past and where he was developing as a, a man down the road. Um, and I think a lot of that reaction was he almost, he just hoped either he was thinking I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to have to go into treatment anyway, or he was thinking if I sort of convince everybody, um, I, it maybe won't, I won't have to admit it to myself that I actually relapsed. Cause I think he was probably struggling very much with how much he would lose if, you know, if he was back at day one at mountainside again. Well, the, the denial is, is off the charts. You know what I mean? Like, because, and I, I, and I still struggle with anger about this to this day in regards to Chris, because him and I spoke every day about recovery and addiction. And, and like, it was, he would say to me all the time how dopey was a tool that helped keep him clean also. You know, he would he'd say that, and, and he would say, I don't, I didn't think I could get this far. I don't think I, I would be this invested in my recovery, you know, if, if we didn't have to talk about this every week, if we weren't hearing from people. And, and Chris was like really good about responding to people's emails in these like very invested sort of ways. Like he would write long emails back to people and he, and, and, and we would deep dive into things about addiction where he would say something and I'd be like, you sound like you're full of shit. And then he'd be like, you're right. And then he'd find his actual feeling about it. And it was like this, it was this, thing so so when and again it was because my friend had just died and, and we had done it like three episodes about my other friend's death right before chris died so like when it came up that he died i was so furious that like he he all he had to do was say something you know what i mean i was a drug addict who's relapsed a billion times our show is just full of drug addicts who relapse a billion times you know you're not going to be so thought of any worse yeah. than you were and like it just I never considered for a second that the denial was so strong in him that he just couldn't say it you know I, I, I've always been like why didn't he just say something you know but he couldn't you know obviously he couldn't because he didn't you know um, it's uh, 
you know, it's so sad. And no, you, you, you. I was just going to say one more thing, so I've become talkative again. My dad, my dad's always thrilled when I grab the mic again for the fiftieth time. I, I do think for me, this is one of the times, and, and I, this again is my own philosophy on his death, but. You know, and for lack of a more polite way to say it, I mean, shit happens. Like it was in the same way you talk about the confluence of events in your life. Chris was just learning how to be a good partner to somebody because he that was a new experience for him. He hadn't he'd usually been using when he was with someone prior to Annie. Um, he was learning what it meant to balance school with an internship, with part time work, living alone, and actually having adult responsibilities. And he was. In, for lack of a better word, like white knuckling his recovery experience, assuming that working in the field gave him enough, you know, attachment to the recovery field, he didn't need to do his own work. And so I think the way I looked at it is saying that combined with whether it was a phony one or not, a back injury, a, a doctor who didn't have his back, you know, he went to a doctor, it wasn't his typical PCP, it was a physician who didn't know his addiction background who gave him um, addictive medications, which I don't blame the physician, I blame Chris for not saying it, but long way of saying it was a confluence of a bunch of things that led to this. And it's why, you know, he was the cat with nine lives, but I, you know, they, the phrase, like, if you keep putting your hand near the fire, it's only a matter of time before you get burned or whatever the actual correct phrasing of that, I think really applies here. I really believe he just kept, you know, going closer and closer and believed he was invincible and all these factors kind of swirled up into one bad thing. And I think for, for our family and for the, the only hope, again, I have is that other families will see that and, and not assume that the person is going to be immune because they've gotten through five, 10 relapses and been okay. Like it, it, you know, his is a good example of how potent substances are and how one small move you know, is, is the end. Right. And, and I've heard from, I mean, you, you hate the value of Chris's death being something. You hate that to even be a possibility. But, I mean, like, when Chris died, I was, I was so crazy, you know, and I, I, was, I had a sponsor who wasn't my real sponsor. Like, my sponsor had moved to California. I had this other sponsor. And the new sponsor said, well, Chris dying was him carrying the message. And I was like, fuck you. And I, like, I like didn't work with him. And I, but I, and I was sick, you know, to hear someone say that to me. Um, However, I heard from so many people who said they they got clean because because Chris stopped Chris Chris died. You know, yeah. so many people like stopped doing the things they were doing because this happened to Chris. You know, and and and, and like listenership grew, but listenership grew. I, I I believe this. It's because X amount of people had listened to the show and they kind of came in and out of the show, whatever. And when Chris died they needed to hear what happened to Chris. And, and all of a sudden it, it doubled or tripled when, when Chris died because they needed to hear the story. They needed to hear what happened to him because they loved him and they cared about him and they saw him themselves in him. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so I know that there has been uh, a result of Chris's death that wasn't the, the ne- you know, the horrible thing it is for you guys and for me and for his friends and, and his family. And I know that in the world it's, it's done something else, which is, it's very, you know, not a real consolation, you know, but, but it's, it's something, you know, it's, and, and he does have a legacy from his work on our show, which is like a joke in itself because it was such a, a jokey thing. 
but it, it, it touched people in, in their yeah. hearts, yeah. you know, and, and like, I, I get it. Like why I do not I, I, I said to you when, when I met you the first time, I don't suggest you listening to the show, mm-hmm. yes. you know, it, it's yes. painful and it's yeah. stupid, but it's got a ton of heart and Chris's heart really showed mm-hmm. in the show. And I know that countless people were affected by it. And, um, like there are parents who listen to the show who's lost their children and there are other parents who listen to the show that are holding on to them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and you can't like, what would you say to somebody who, who had a, a child who was an adult or a child and, and they're in and out of this thing? Like, would you, would you give them different advice than you took yourself? Like what do you, do you blame yourself at all? Probably my thoughts would be, I mean, so recently Arden told me to, to, take this master class uh, program, this YouTube kind of uh, sessions and different, all different topics. And I took this one with uh, Robin Roberts from um, Good Morning America. And it was just about communication. And honestly, it's very strange that this came up. And she was talking about her mother and she had been through a lot of physical problems and the things in her life. And she said, everybody has something. And she said, but my mother said, and her whole, her whole session was on make your mess your message. And um, she said, we've all got to make your mess your message. And she said, that's how, that's how I got into communication. That's how I, I felt about it. And honestly, when you were talking, you know, about the sponsor that you said, that's what in the end you did do both of you without realizing it you made your mess and it it it, it, you know not to say that addiction is a mess but it is a form of a mess for anybody and it is your message that is what your message is a dopey at least that's how I feel that that's your message is your story and I think in the end that's one of the surprises that we learned about Chris was that the mess was the message so if you ask what we would say, you know, have other parents do, yes, there's times that I feel like, well, there could be something more. There could be a message that we should be able to give to other parents about this. Um, and maybe that will come. It's just for, for whatever reason, whether it's raw, whether it's our age, I don't know. It hasn't totally realized itself yet. Um, but no, I, I, I don't think we, I think there's many things that we wish we could have been aware of, that there's always the, what happened? Why weren't we? Why didn't we know that? Why didn't we see that? With any death, it's that way. Um, but as far as blaming ourselves, uh, I feel, and I think Peter feels, and Arden, who has mentioned it just before, we really did a lot of things with Christopher and really felt like, there was a family life and there were things that he enjoyed and he loved and that when he was in trouble, there was some place to go and that it was typically his home. He may not have wanted to go there. It may not have been so pretty, but it was always available. And so we no, I don't think we have regrets about what we didn't do except that we wish we knew more. When you say what else can you do, it was like trying to make plans on a roller coaster. Things going up and down. He's sober. He's he's off. He's everything is upside down, and you you, you're reacting to the steep falls. So you never really have a chance to sit back and say, "What are we doing wrong?" And it was only towards the end of his not the right at the end, but the prior time that we had somebody 
come to me primarily and say, you know, you're sort of running around like a chicken with your head cut off. You should know more than you are, and you've got to separate yourself. And it was actually Diana Clark said to me, said, why don't you tell him you're not going to talk to him for six months or a year? So I actually wrote him a letter and said that and said, you know, you can't just react to everything he does because he knows that Arden is much more logical than you are, and you're just sort of the local punching bag. And if he hits you here, you're going to react over there. And so we did that, and that was some help. But as far as giving advice, it's almost like you can't tell somebody else, you know, your son should do this because your son might be a four on this addiction scale, and Chris was a nine and a half. It's like... If, if my alcoholism is a three or four, what I learned, go to AA and you'll never drink again, that wouldn't work for him because his addiction was so bad. So it's almost something you have to go through the pain yourself as a parent. And I'm not sure what to tell you except to get some professional help. And as I once said, is I'm not sure it's in the medical profession, but someplace that says what you're doing is failing over here. You're becoming an enabler over there. And... Then all of a sudden, <clears throat> take whatever time frame you have and quadruple it. If you think your son's going to be cleaned up, if he's got a severe addiction, if you think he's going to be cleaned up in a year, try five years yeah. or ten years. Yeah. We always assumed he's got mm-hmm. three years under his belt, we're home free. The last mm-hmm. time was four and a half years under his belt. It's all set. It's never going to happen again. And lo and behold, given the extent of his addiction, we probably should have said 20 years. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it, there's no telling, right? There's no time. And, and his addiction was so severe that I, I'm i not sure he was ever coming out of it, you know. But um, it's, we, we clearly at the front end thought, you know, we sent him to this program out in Arizona. He'll be back at school by the second semester, maybe. Everything's ducky. And by the time we finished, I'm praying that he stays with Colin and Ted and Dylan out and, and hope he doesn't come back to Boston because that's where he should be because that looked like an ongoing lifestyle program. And yet that's, what, that's not what he wanted to do. Right. Yeah, he would talk about that all the time. Did he ever, did you guys ever talk like 12-step stuff? Did, you, did he ever like ask you about it or was he too proud to go he to you about it? He was too proud to do it. And by that time, I had, you know, I, in order to have talked 12, you need a sponsor. I wasn't that active in the program. By the time Chris was, I had 15 or 20 years of sobriety, and by that time, and my degree of addiction wasn't as serious as I wouldn't have been any help to him. Because what happened to me 34 years ago, I knew there was a problem coming down the road because of my family history. I had a good friend go into the one of the, went to Edgehill, which is one of the few inpatient programs in those days 30 years ago. And I said, well, if he's doing it, maybe I should do it. And I stopped. That wasn't germane to Christopher, and I never drank again. And uh, you know, so that's not, I couldn't impart that to him because it wouldn't make any sense. It was gobbledygook, just saying, okay, as of next Tuesday, don't drink anymore. And myself and this particular individual, we hung on to each other dearly for about two or three years, and I hung on to AA for three or four years. And then, as I said, I went to church because that's what constantly brought it to my head. So my experience had nothing to do with his experience because his addiction was worse than my addiction. And he needed somebody who was very active in AA, like yourself, who's been through the drug. I, you know, I never used a drug in my life, so I don't understand that. Well, I, I, I go to AA because I find it to give me the tools I need to deal with this thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, and, I, and I don't go every day. I, I go a few times a week, and I 
talked to a sponsor and I talked to a ton of addicts and, and I talked to a bunch of alcoholics and, uh, I just don't want to lose this. Th- I clawed my way back from the edge of the world to So this to, represents stability for you to stick with that. I, I do it because I, I want to be as, ha- I, I, I ruined my life. You know what I mean? Yeah, like right. I, I ruined, I, I'm, I'm 46 years old when I was 41. I, I had a kid and, uh, and I was a waiter and I had a little bit of cash because I was a waiter, but I had nothing, and I had a lot of dreams, and I and none of what I wanted to do worked out for me, you know. And I said when I was forty one, like I, I, I had just started to fix my family, and I relapsed again, and uh, and my daughter's mother knew about it, and she was like, she took away custody from me, and that's when I realized like I couldn't fight this fight anymore. Mm-hmm. Like that was it was a moment, you know, mm-hmm. and I and I always wanted a moment, and that was my moment where I was I was writing her a letter. I remember I was sitting in New York City, I was sitting on the Lower East Side, and I'm I'm, I'm writing an email, sweating, smoking cigarettes, and probably smoking pot, begging her to let me smoke pot and have the kid. And I looked at myself, and I looked at the screen, and I was like, what am I what am I fighting for here? And that's when I was like, I got to try something else, and um and that's and. and I never gave it an inch back because I knew that I would lose exactly. all this stuff, you know. And I think, I think Chris, you know, you, you want to say it, c- it could never happen, or if he had this, it could have happened. All we have is what happened, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? We, all we're all we're left with is 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 this tragedy, you know. And um, and I have to say, like, you know, for the years that we made Dopey for two and a half years, three years, you know, and. Um, and we did it in Manhattan, and uh, and then he got tired of driving to Manhattan, and we decided to come here, and uh, and we'd come here when you guys weren't here, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's very painful, you know, to come here. And, you know, you you drive out here, and and or I drove out here thinking like maybe I'll see Chris. It represents. Well, of course, but seeing you guys. I see Chris. You know what I mean. You both have Chris. All three of you have a ton of Chris in you. And he had a ton of you in him. And it's, you know, it's, you know, I can't imagine how you guys live with him not being around. You know what I mean? Like, for me, it was like, for me, Chris's existence for me was almost like a dream. Like, it was, it was this intense period of time, and it was captured in a fucking podcast. You know, and it's very weird and surreal. And, and, and he's gone, and, and, and it remains. But for you guys, it was your life. And it was his, you, he was your life, and you were his. And I, I... I can't imagine, you know, like what you guys have to live with, you know? Well, you always assume it's going to go away because you always say time heals everything. And in this particular case, it doesn't. And as I said before, is that you put up a face in front of everybody because you don't want to act like a sad sack. And, you, and they say, how are you doing? You say, we're doing it. And Arden said that you, you go through life doesn't mean you don't laugh, doesn't mean you don't enjoy what you're doing. But your life is different than it was two years ago. And it's never coming back. But you hope that there's some things, you know, that, yes, you had all this turmoil and uh, as as he went through it, but you hope that there's some things that you pick up from Chris. Like you said, um, he, he uh, didn't like a lot of accolades. He also would correct things in you. He would correct anything that he thought if you weren't telling the truth or if you were sort of shading the truth, he really called you on it. And you sort of say, okay, well, you know, there's times, like we, I talk to him every day, and I say, I'm trying, I'm trying to do what you would have 
you the good parts of you that we all love and and I'm, I'm serious about that. That's about the kind of thing that you think of when you're, when you're missing your, your child is that there's good things that are somewhere, that somewhere came out in him that maybe you can expound upon. It's strange. Given what he put us through for 10 years, you'd like to sit around and feel sorry for us. We actually learned an awful lot. Yes, yes. He was an extraordinarily generous mm-hmm. person. He wasn't jealous of anybody else's mm-hmm. success. Mm-hmm. He didn't blame anybody else for his problems, and he actually made us better people, which was really Yes, special. yes, that's what I meant. It's exactly what I meant. And that's In so many makes, ways. That's what makes it so difficult. There's one you thought, you thought you beat the game. You thought after four and a half years you're probably there. You should have known better, at least I should have as an alcoholic, that it's a never-ending itch. It's always there. 34 years later, there's still an itch. But it's, I think when you looked at him, you got to see for four and a half years what an extraordinary individual he was. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to sanctify him because, you know, he, he, he had a lot of failings, but most of them were moral failings. I mean, he was an extraordinarily decent human being. He, def- he definitely was. I mean, and one of the things I like to say about him, he was, he was young, but he didn't seem young. No. And, no. Uh, and he was like anachronistic. You know, he mm-hmm. was very much a person out of time. Yes. You know, he yes. wasn't like a fucking idiot, like these idiots. You know what I mean? You could talk to him about something that happened 100 years ago or, or 50 years ago or, or like when he would always talk about when man crushed grape. Like he, he, he <laughs> dealt with... interesting. <laughs> Sorry, yes. That's exactly what it is. He had this unique ability to be able to couple things from things that you would never understand or read things that you'd say, you read that? I mean, you'd think this is, this is the same guy that's giving you all this trouble is doing this or interested in that and carry it to the nth degree and laugh about it. Uh, he, st- he had such an interesting personality that he's a very tough person to, to duplicate or to miss. He's just, just because if, of his if uniqueness. you to lose your temper with somebody in a store or restaurant, he act differently when he was there. It was really peculiar. I always tell you, those... You just say, I can't say this in front of him. Exactly. Like, like, give me an example of that. Oh, well, if you went to a store, she'll tell you an example. And it just... I have an example. I went to the uh, store right here in Southampton to the cheese shop, and I have no patience, none. And we went in there together, Chris and I, and... They said, what kind of sandwiches do you want? Okay, we'll do that. You have to go up in the front and pay for it. Walk up in the front. What kind of sandwiches? Uh, They told me to tell you, no, you have to get the slip from them. I go back to get the slip from them. But but what about this isn't on there? Do you have any extras? I go back and the thing, I lose it. And And I stood there and I said, excuse me, what do we need? And Chris looked at me and said, this has to stop right now. (laughs) <laughs> right now, Mom. He said, you have, this has to stop. And I remember being, my face got all, I remember being so embarrassed. And then I remember thinking about it a few days later and saying to him, thanks. I said, I, I was. I get, I get, I have no patience. I blow up when, when things aren't right. But you, Peter's right. You would never, you would think twice before you did you something. You would never do anything to someone beneath you. In other words, if you want to go... I'm in the real estate business. If I wanted to punch a real estate developer in the nose, so be it. But if I wanted to punch somebody shoveling at the, uh, the construction site, he'd go crazy. He was very courteous to people on a different social scale than he was on. Mm-hmm. And he taught you the, the, to be very aware of everybody around you. 
Well, he also, because he knew he was down. Like, when he yeah. was down, he was shoulder to shoulder yeah. with whoever. So he, he knew. He could relate to him very easily. Yes. He wasn't some just smart-ass rich kid. He was just, he just. Mm-hmm. Like, he was a mm-hmm. smart-ass rich kid, but he wasn't just some smart-ass yeah, rich yeah. kid. <laughs> That's <funny> true. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and I, I mean, we, the reason that the show was good was because Chris had this ability to be brilliant and idiotic at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the best mm-hmm. phrase I ever heard about it was, like, you guys were the dumbest smart guys we ever heard. Like, <laughs> And, like, we never tried to be smart. We, we wanted to be... Chris would always come in with some smart stuff. Yeah. And, and, like, because he knew everything about drugs. Mm-hmm. He knew everything about addiction. He knew everything about the chemistry of it yes. somehow. Yes, he and did. he knew everything about uh, recovery because he had been to so many treatments and he... You know, it was drilled into him. So, like, we would, it was, it was like almost like a, a football game. Like, I would do the play by play and he would be the analyst. <laughs> yeah. And he would just have all of the, the material. And it was, it was um, very magical to do such a dumb show that we did. And, you know, there is no replacing him, you know, in any capacity because. You know, he was that guy. He was exactly how you described him, you know, so special and uh, very unusual. Like, he was an mm-hmm. unusual person. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, I, I just want to, I don't want to stop talking about him because I think this is a great way to keep him alive. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I I appreciate you guys agreeing to, to do this. You know what I mean? Like, I understand why it can be painful and... Uh, I hope there's some kind of solace that, like, he has a legacy, as as weird mm-hmm. as that is, you know? It, well, thank you. Thank you for this, and thank you for caring for our son so much. This is this is a good thing. Well, I mean, I love Chris, and uh, and I know how much he loved you guys, too. Mm-hmm. Like, he he knew, like, how much his family loved him, and he and he loved you guys, and, like... Another thing, and I don't know if I told you guys this, but I'm sure I've said it on the show a million times, is that the night before, me and Chris were fighting at the very end of the show a lot, like, because he was using, and and he wasn't showing up to do the show, and when he would do the show, it was not good, you know, and I was just like, I was like, do I do the show? I mean, because I just thought he was done. I just thought he wasn't interested. I I thought, like, he had moved on with his life, and he wasn't interested in doing the show. And um, the night before he died... He told me how much he loved me mm-hmm. and that um, how important our friendship was and how important the show was and how he's just going through something. And it was like, like it's like it was such a gift to have that conversation. Like, you know, I, it didn't have to happen that way. You know what I mean? And, and you know, it, it's, it's weird. And obviously it's, it's a tragedy that we can't really, you know, we can talk about this, that, and the other thing, but it's, 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 I'm very grateful that I got to have that conversation with him before he died, you know, and, um, and I'm grateful that we got to do this, you know. Thank you. And thank you for honoring his, uh, his memory. And honestly, I'm really thrilled that there's such a, um, I think he would be overwhelmed by the support of everybody in the Dopey Nation for kind of sticking not only with the podcast, um, but the amount of support, the amount of people who have gotten Dopey Nation tattoos. Just People have tattoos, you know this, right? (laughs) (laughs) They have tattoos that say Dopey and then it says Toodles because Chris would say Toodles. It's tattooed on them. Yeah, I I, I think it's the best testament to the quirky personality he had that was very understated, but very much had a big heart and really wanted to help. So thank you. 
well, it's it's like I, I do it because I want to. You know what I mean? I don't do it like I, I think Chris did it because he wanted to. We, it's exactly we right. did it because we get joy from it. Like, and any anything else is just like a side effect. I also think that the reason that Dopey meant so much to him was because it could. He didn't have to put anything on. He could be a smart-ass rich yes. kid. He could be a total drug addict. He could be a, a PsyD candidate. Yeah. He could be a, a kid from a good family. And he could be the person that fucked it all up because he didn't have to compartmentalize anything. Yeah. And, and I think that was freeing for him, you know? And, um, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, thank you guys. Thanks. Thank I appreciate you. it very much. So that was pretty fucking painful, right? It was a lot of things. It was, um, I said it in the thing. It was, the craziest thing was how much they look like Chris. Really? And how I kept mu- wondering what they, they, what they look like. They, they look exactly like Chris, which means they probably look like each other, but they didn't look like each other, right. but they look totally like Chris. And their accents kind of merge to forms Chris's crazy accent. It makes sense that Chris is so, so smart because that's all I kept thinking is like, what a smart family. Like right. Arden is so Freaking brilliant, you know. Like I could hear, listen to her talk. I, I just wanted her to keep talking, and I thought his mother was so eloquent, and his father had such you know, you know, old school wisdom. Right. Like, like we we loved his con- his uh, comment about the itchy shirt, which I which really stuck with me. How, can you explain that better than I I could? Because well, I, I loved think that. It was, I think it was like an old school AA thing right. where you're like you're the guy who wears the itchy shirt and somehow you stop scratching. You you get used to it. You get used. You to get it. comfortable in the itchiness and it becomes a normal shirt. Right. And he didn't think that ever happened for Chris. And right. I want to thank Chris's parents yeah. because like they didn't have to do this. I thought it would be good for the Dopey Nation to hear the story of where Chris came from and to see the wake he left. You know what I mean? Like the wreckage in his past. They were so humble, so honest. um, And and broken, you know, like it it was... And vulnerable. And I I say that with only love. Like I didn't know what they were going to be like when I got there. And as soon as I got there... I'm sure me being there didn't make them overwhelmingly comfortable and joyful because I am a remnant of Chris's past. So, like, I'm sure it conjured up the pain, but the pain was very evident on their faces. It was two years ago. It's not a long yeah. time. No, it's in, not. In, in the history of his life. And his father's... And it's an anniversary, so it's a lot. We recorded... We we done a different thing. We had gotten there, and Arden suggested that we record in the front of the house. Right. So we set up in the front of the house... And I like started the interview by saying, how are they doing? And they both started crying immediately. Wow. And uh, there yeah. was so much traffic in the street. I was like, let's not. I was like 10 right. minutes in right. and he was crying in traffic. I was like, let's go to the back of the house instead. And I, and I, I, I'm not, I'm not Geraldo Rivera. You know what I mean? I'm not dying. You're for not everyone. Phil Donahue. Yeah. I'm not dying for tears on the show, but like it was very clear that. They are broken yeah. and, and that it is, they can put on a face, but it's going to take a long time for any kind of healing to happen and it probably will never fully heal. No. And that's the deal, you know? And, um, but I think it was uh, important, you know, we did a show about the dumbest things we did in addiction and recovery and Chris overdosed and died and his family's still here and I think their voice on the show is really important. Oh, Absolutely. Um, and since it is dopey and it is Chris's show, 
I want to play some of Chris, you know? And we need some we need some Chris bits. We need some some bits of Chris. And yes. I'm, the first thing I'm gonna play, it's like this. Hold on, let's see what we got. This my this is my. I think we've played this before, but it's my favorite thing. Uh, is this your favorite Chris bit? No, but it's oh. one of them. It's my one of my favorite Chris stories, which is Lonely Space. Did I tell you? Did, I, did you do Lonely Space with me the last time we did this? I don't know what that is. Lonely Space when when. Chris uh, met this woman that he called Olga on the show, mm-hmm. who actually was Annie's roommate. He tried to court her by making a podcast with her, okay. and, and making a po- and she was interested in helping the homeless. So oh. he was going to make a podcast with her about helping the homeless, and they were going to call it Lonely Space. Okay, <laughs> and when I found out about it, I got so upset because right. I thought like. He was going to be done with Dopey. So he was going to just only do Lonely Space. Yes. Do you want to hear? Yes. So Chris and Helga go to Frank, the local homeless man in Boston. So I would talk to him on my way home. He's at one of the stoplights. And I'd been talking to him for months. And he was sober eight years. And I'd always chop it up with him for like a minute or two on the way home. And you decided that he would be the, the greatest guest. The inaugural guest. For this podcast. Yes. So Chris doesn't have anywhere to take him. So he takes him to his parents' house. It's Chris, Helga, and the homeless guy, Frank. The homeless guy's girlfriend. So he brings to my parents' house, which was incredibly stupid. Dopey Nation, they live in a hotel with doorman and valet parking. But he's doing this to impress. Boston Harbor. He's doing all of this to impress Helga. I think she'd already been. To, no, she hadn't been yet. No, no, no. You did all. You, you to, to, I didn't want the house to impress her. I said nowhere to do it. Fine. No, what impresses her is that you're such a man of the people. <laughs> you're going to bring the homeless guy and his girlfriend to your parents' house. Yeah. And, and did you get, you gave them food? Yeah, I gave him a hundred bucks too. You gave him a hundred bucks? Well, whatever, man. I didn't even ask for it. Just, Did you earn that hundred dollars? Yeah, <laughs> blood, sweat, and tears, man. So you have him at your parents' house. You give him your parents' money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you record. How much? Did how, it was like an hour. He tells us the story. It was good. It was decent. Okay. Yeah. And then he leaves. Yeah. And then Chris calls me, and he tells me. Oh, you were pissed. He tells me he's done a podcast with this girl about (laughs) homelessness, and I lost my mind. You got pissed. I was was so angry. Oh, yeah. Like, because he's he's launching a podcast without me, (laughs) and and I didn't understand how shallow Chris was and that he was just using this as a tool to get the girl. I I was devastated. Then... Chris Rin runs into Frank wanna, again. Oh my god, that was the worst. Not again. Shh, wait, Every wait, fucking wait. Day. Chris walks right to Frank. Frank's like, hey man, how's Lonely Space? <laughs> yeah, when's it coming out? Chris is like, and the worst is, I'm like, shoot. Chris shoot. is like, I think it's dynamite, Frank. Yeah. This podcast has legs and I know podcasts. He's like, wait, Chris. Every day, I'm like, it's coming soon. It's coming <laughs> and weeks and weeks and weeks pass. Yeah. And then... And months. And, and, months. And, and months and months and months. And it's still going. It's still... I see no, no. him still. And then Frank has finally gotten in his head that Lonely Space is not happening. But he's like, do you think I could just get the recording? <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> and then I hear Frank, you think I could get the recording? 
And Chris goes, well, flash drives are very expensive. I'm not, they're like a dollar in the store. And, he's, and then, and then what, what Chris is really saying is, you don't have a computer, Frank. How are you ever going to play the, your recording? Why don't you just talk to yourself and you can hear your story? You don't know how many things I thought of before. Like, the last time I was like, I was like, maybe you too. <laughs> We're laughing at oh, Frank's life because he's homeless. It's so bad. Dude. Well, he makes more money than I get from my parents. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh fascinating. Oh, my God. <sighs> this is very insensitive to the homeless world. No, Fitzy's awesome. No, I, I mean, everything I've said, it's been very, very insensitive. No, we know where it's coming from. We know your heart's in a good place. So I love that one just because I love <laughs> making Chris laugh. You know what I mean? Yes. Such a, a crazy laugh. This is one that everybody loves. This is one of Chris's most legendary episodes was his first jail stories episodes because Chris was obviously this very, very, like, smart and stable kid who wound up doing a year and a half in prison in California. And this is the story of uh, when he got into a prison riot. Okay. So they start fighting over something, the Mexicans and blacks. They start literally fighting. There's a riot. And Tyler comes out. And Tyler's in my cube. And he's like, he yells out, yo, Woods. So that means all the Woods have to come in and join the Mexicans, right? And so then all the Asians come in and join the blacks. So the Paisanos are still by themselves doing their thing. So like 85, 90%, there's not a ton of Paisanos, are fighting, right? And so I'm out in the middle... And um, and you're supposed to fight, right? So there's just this like one little Asian dude. <laughs> he's, he's off to the side, and so I just like ran to attack him, and um, I ended up I didn't rough him up. I ended up punching him lightly in the ear, right, as he ran away. And then the guards came in and they pepper sprayed us all, and we went back to our cells. And literally the next day, the Asian guy was walking to walk by our cube. It was like open air in general population. He had to walk by my cube, and I was like, like, he made eye contact with me, and I was like, I like struck my shoulders. I was like, sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> and he started laughing. He was like, it's okay. So funny. <laughs> and I, I just, um, you know, it, it, I fucking struggle with Chris being dead yeah. so much. And, it has to um, be hard for you to hear him. These. It's weird. The whole thing is just weird. It's like, it's like a dream yeah. that we that we did dopey together. It's like it's like a dream. Do you know? I don't even know. Is how dopey to the dream, or is it like a dream that he's not here? Like, which one is more surreal? Now, dopey is the the, the stuff we did together is more surreal because this is life now. He's right. not around. Right. I mean, they're both just as surreal, but it's just weird because. Ninety-eight percent of our conversations all got recorded on our podcast. Yeah, you know, and um, and we had such a good time, you know. And I, like I say a million times over and over, like I didn't know he was using, and the show was suffering when he was using, but it was because he was using. You know what I'm saying? Like when he was sober, we were so funny, and the show was so good. Right. And um, you know, the whole thing is incredibly painful, obviously, and we'll never have. Another, uh, it'll never be like it was. And it just shows like how crazy it is to lose somebody who's really special. And I'm sure a lot of people in the audience have have lost somebody themselves. And um, it makes me want, obviously I could play Chris clips all day. I know, I want to hear more. There's 143 (laughs) um, episodes with Chris. Chris. Or 142 episodes with Chris. 
So feel free to listen to them. I can play you another one. Do you want to hear another one? I want to hear one more. All right, I'll play you one more. Yeah. This one I just think is funny. Okay, there's this dude. He was a regular at Katz's. Um, very famous bass player. His name was Leland Sklar. He played on James Taylor's record. He played with the Eagles. He played with uh, Linda Ronstadt. He played with um, Carol King. And, and he went. He was on the tour with like James Taylor when he was like shooting dope. And he was on the tour with the Eagles when they're fucking, you know, snorting coke. And he was just like this big time, big time rock and roll bass player. And, and I knew him from Katz's. And I figured he'd come on and tell us all these crazy drug stories. Right. And that wasn't. And Chris had no idea who he was. He didn't <laughs> care. And well, Chris wasn't a music person. Either. No, he was the opposite of right. a music person. So uh, that's enough of the setup. Okay. I don't want to give away. The thing. First of all, if you saw Chris during the Leland Sklar oh interview, God. he's like, he's like, it's like as if I killed his sister. It's like, it's like as if I was like fucking. Why well, didn't even know what I'm talking about? They're like, they're like, how about like Bobby Boucher? And like, <laughs> you know, uh, he was killer on bass. <laughs> but Chris, Chris, okay, it was so funny. It's the first interview we can't play because I'm like. So Leland, um, tell me, you know, you you came up in the in the age of total coke excess and alcohol, you know. Could you tell me a little bit about that? He goes, I've never drank or done a drug in my life. Yeah. Chris's face just turned green. Yeah. He just turned white, and then he's like looking at me, and that's where the evil begins. And then like I'm asking him, I'm like, so Leland. Tell me yeah, the, most, <laughs> the most fucked up, the most debaucherous, the most debaucherous tour. And Chris, and Chris perks up. Yeah, like, Dave, you're doing good. Yeah. He's like, you're doing good. I go, tell me about the most debaucherous. I mean, this dude toured with the worst drug addicts yeah. in the world. So Leland goes, well, I have to say, none of the tours <laughs> I went on were debaucherous. <laughs> and Chris is like, he's so... I'm, I'm looking at Dave just mouthing, stop it. My favorite thing is when he says... Oh, who are you, Bobby Boucher? Because he's never <laughs> heard of anybody. And and I just love clips where we both die laughing. Yeah, that's the best. Um, now, this is another classic Chris story, which he called the Cheapy Hammer story. Okay? And everyone everyone loves the Cheapy Hammer story. You ready? I'm ready. Um, okay, so fucking... I'm in this sober living. It was, uh, I get this shitty job, and they tell me, and they're so cheap, and they're like, you have to bring your own hammer because you have to drive nails a lot. And... Uh, I work construction when I was like 13. I'm like 21 now, oh. right? And so I go to, the, and I'm fucking broke, right? You know, the family's not helping out. Like, I gotta pay my own sober, I gotta pay for everything, you know? And they're gonna be making nothing. And I just got out of this rehab, and this rehab, you work for the rehab at the end, and they pay you some money, and then you can leave, right? So I had like 200 bucks or something, yeah. like nothing. Yeah. You pay for food and everything, right? And uh, so I go to the store to buy a hammer, yeah. and fucking. Um, they, uh, I was looking at the hammers, and the hammers are like, they're like fifty bucks, like expensive. Why? What's a fifty dollar hammer? I don't know. I get they're big hammers, they're like Good 40, hammer. 50 bucks. Nice yeah. hammer, the space age hammers. Well, I'm looking. Well, I guess it's like all the hammers that they would that I should be getting are like at the least forty bucks. And I find this one really small hammer off to the side, and I didn't know this, Sophie Nation, but I guess there's like a, like a. Like a tack hammer, like seeing pictures, like in an apartment, like this. You know right. what I mean? And the other hammers are for like driving nails, like carpenters. Yeah. So I get this little hammer, 
there, right? And I bring it to work, and it's the first day of work, right? And I come in, and one of like the El Salvadorian like foremans, he sees me. His name is Bulmaro, and Bulmaro sees me, and he sees my hammer. And he just starts crying, laughing. And he grabs the hammer. It's my first day there in front of everybody. And he holds the hammer up above his head. He pinches it between his fingers. And he holds it as high as he can, right? And everybody looks, stops and looks at it. And he, he looks at me and he goes, cheapy hammer. <laughs> everybody just starts dying laughing. And the rest of the time I was there, everybody called me cheapy hammer. That's a great story. It was a good story. I love it. And then I got high with um, Eddie, Eduardo. Um, and that was part of the story that I'll never tell in Dopey. But he ended up overdosing in my friend's sober living. And uh, that was the end of that job. Cheapy hammer. Cheapy hammer. I just love it. I, I love any story. Chris is such a good storyteller. And, and I like how he, t- he starts the story with fucking, like, that's how we both <laughs> That's said how you everything. both talk. I know. I know it's crazy. <laughs> um, and then he alluded to this thing at the end. The story he refused to tell. Yeah, what's that? Well, people write me about this all the time. There's a story that he refused to tell on Dopey, and he decided the only time he would tell the story is if Artie came on the show. So for some reason, I, I just figured I knew Chris, and I knew the story he refused to and tell. And you know, you know the story. Not really. I know, but I knew that the story he told on Dopey, that he refused to tell on Dopey, wasn't going to be as good as half the stories he told on Dopey, because that's just how he was. And when we went to Hoboken to do the Artie Lang thing, we both told each other a story that we would tell that day on the Artie episode. And Chris told me a story involving Eduardo, and I don't remember the details. (laughs) You know, I really don't. I was really, really nervous about Artie, and I was really focused on Didn't care on about the Eduardo story at I didn't that point. care about it. Right. All I know is that Chris didn't get gay in the Eduardo story, but it was like there was, wow. there was some gay action. But he didn't get gay. That's why the story wasn't that good. But maybe There might was, have been some touching. It was, there was an allusion to homoerotic action, possibly with Eduardo. Possibly. But I have to say, for the record, yeah. I don't remember... The story, like I really don't. Right, but it was something like that. So if anybody's curious about what the story is, it's some gay stuff with Eduardo. I think. <laughs> Just you know, Chris, may you rest in peace. I love you, but you know, already came on the show. You never told the story. People and, haunt and, me with and, this and we'll shit. Ne- and we'll never know about Eduardo. Yeah, he takes the story to his grave. Um, now, again, it's such a thrill. It's such a sad thrill. I mean, it's weird. Like. Right. It's a thrill to have an audience. It's a thrill to have an audience who cares. It's, it's a thrill to have strangers all over the world to know you and know how sad it is that Chris died and, and miss him and, and miss our dynamic. Like, I know lots of people love Chris way more than me, but... It's the two, it's the two of you together. The chemistry, I think, is what is so powerful. And um, and first of all, I want to thank Wusta. Wusta gave us all these clips. Wusta gave us another batch of dopey art. Wusta is a very mysterious teacher somewhere in New England, mm. and uh, he's a great member of the Dopey Nation. And there's so many amazing members of the Dopey Nation who do so much stuff. And um, and one of these great members of the Dopey Nation, she calls herself the Dopey Fairy. 
You probably know her as Misty Janney. And um, she fucking, you know, somebody texted me today, Price, another Dopey Nation guy texted me today. He said, dude, do you think Joe Rogan has anybody making bootleg Joe Rogan <laughs> merchandise? Uh, and Misty, Misty makes the coolest, dopey, bootleg, off-brand, coolest shit. And, um, and she wrote this beautiful thing. And Linda read it, and she's like, I want to read it. So let's hear it. Okay. Um, so this is what she, uh, Misty posted for uh, Dopey Day. Um, and I really liked it. So this is from Misty. Why the Dopey Eyes? About four years ago, I... I was struggling with my recovery and could feel myself falling back to a place that I hoped to God I would never go again. I stumbled on this podcast almost from its conception. It was just these two recovering heroin addicts telling funny, not funny stories of their debaucherous behavior during active addiction. They made me laugh and kept me company during my lonely nights at work. Each week, my heart grew fonder of these two friends, and I was hooked. Their laughter was contagious, and I began to not feel quite so lonely. Dopey began to grow in ways I cannot imagine. These guys were proof that we can, can and do recover and that recovery is not boring. That we will again one day laugh about the dumb shit we did. In fact, the podcast is all about drugs, addiction, dumb shit, and recovery. Then episode 143, Dave comes on the air and informs us that the worst thing that could happen had happened. His friend and podcast partner had relapsed and died. I still have a hard time with just how devastating this was to me. Of course, the fans all reached out to Dave and to each other to com- for comfort and support, and the Dopey Nation was born. I am very proud to be a founding member of this group. I had found th- 3,500 of my people. Our rules for this group was no matter what compassion was no matter what compassion for all, no matter where you're at, is key. Are you a methadone? Are you on methadone or subs? Good on you. At least you're instilling from your parents and sticking a needle in your neck. Still smoke weed? Cool. Still actively using? All okay. Harm reduction? You bet your ass. Because dead people can't recover. But here is, but here is what I really found. I found friends in this community. Actual real friends. They check in on me. I check in on them. I haven't had that since before high school. We have meetings. We celebrate our victories with each other as well as grieve with each other. I have support groups that is unlike anything I've ever experienced, and I swear it's magic. My husband has seen the transformation that I have gone through and absolutely believes that my connection with Dopey is why, because that is exactly what it is. It is a connection without shame. I no longer have to keep my dirty, toxic past a secret. It no longer bottles up inside me until I can't handle it. I never, I never even knew that connection like this existed. I know that we all know someone... We, we love who is affected by addiction. Tell them about Dopey. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I know you are proud of us. We miss you, but thank you so much for bringing us together. So beautiful. Yeah, so well written, Misty. And Misty just does so much good stuff. And I want to just name a few people, and I know I'm going to leave a bunch of people out. Some people that have been incredibly helpful are obviously the Facebook administrators, administrators Andrew, Catherine, Paulina, Leah... Um, fucking the new Dopey Nation street team, Scott, Dan, Matt, fucking Aaron, Kira, Sam is always instrumental, Aurora always helps out, Brad picks up a thing here and there, 
Greg Trainer steps in when it's needed. So many graphic designers throw their amazing work into the fray. Nick does amazing work. Um, what's his face did that thing? Nate, fucking the amount of involvement is just so cool. There's a woman um, in Dopey Nation who just did a fucking tattoo today yeah. on herself. It's with really a good too. Her name is Jessica. That's serious commitment. Anybody with a dopey tattoo, I salute you. And I think there <laughs> needs to be more dopey tattoos. Yes. Fucking, um, I'm going to play some, uh, some music before we're done. Some Chris music. Um, what's Chris music? What's Chris music? We have, I mean, like everybody gets on me. I hear two sides of the coin with this. I refuse to do Chris tributes without pay- playing Baby back ribs. Okay. And without playing The Lion Sleeps Tonight. It doesn't work for me without playing that. Right. And then somebody in the Dopey Nation sent me a techno track that they call Toodles. Wow. So are you ready to hear the I'm, music? I'm and then dying we're done? to, yes. Um, thank you, everybody. Yeah. Happy Dopey Day. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. We love you. Uh, Chris... You know, if if there is a heaven, you should be proud, Chris. If there is a heaven, you know, you're and you're in it. You know, I'm sure you're enjoying all the adulation. Yeah, he always would say that I would like the adulation, which I do. <laughs> but I know that he would love it, and that's the and he the, deserves it, every he, ounce of it. Absolutely. All right, stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles, toodles. for Chris. I want my baby back, 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 baby back. Stop it! You go. I want my baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, back. I want my baby. You have to say back. I want my. I'll tap you when you. I want my baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back. I want my baby back, baby back, Come on, dude. Do you know the top part? Do you know the top part? My baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back. <laughs> just do it, man, please. I can't fucking finish it. I'm just keep picturing the hundreds of people listening to this. They're not listening. Right, listening. I feel like this would be like a good sleep podcast. We could just do an hour of. Uh, home. I just want to do the part. Just please. All right, all right. Last you time. This is the last time. This is the last time we're gonna try. Okay. No, 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 no. no I'm no. gonna get it. I don't think I can do the top part. I want my baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back. I want my baby back, 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 baby back. Barbecue sauce, barbecue sauce. It's not yet. That was good. That was good enough. That was the best we're getting. We're done. I agree with that. Do you know the lion sleeps tonight in the jungle? Do you want to do the bottom part or the top part? The lion sleeps tonight. You went to the bottom part? I'm bottom. I can't do top. The top you know the bottom part? Yeah, in the jungle. No, it goes, oh, okay. Alright, right, I'll do that. Okay. That gave me a nice little rush last time, the yeah. mini back. I feel like it's a similar tone. Yeah, I do. Alright. I whim away, I whim away, I whim away. No! <laughs> what? He goes, I whim away, I whim away, I whim away, I whim away. Okay, all right, I got it, I got it, I got it. 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 I
<laughs> hey, tell me how it goes again. I win my way. I win my way. I win my way. Okay, so it'll go down. Okay. I win my way. I win my way. I win my way. I win my way. Okay, but if I, let's say I fuck it up and I just keep doing Wimbo Why don't you do the In the Jungle part? I, I don't know all the words. I just know In the Jungle, the Mighty Jungle, the Lion Sleeps Tonight. That's enough. That'll be fine. Okay. A wimbo way, 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 a
Honestly, you know, bad card. It's a good song. I think my whole opinion of you has dramatically changed. Everything to you is Toodles. <laughs> Why? Dude, the Dopey Nation loves Toodles. The Dopey Nation loves Toodles. Yeah. And most importantly... It's not... It, don't even say it. And most importantly... How about there was, there was a guy who wrote... Somebody had written something. Well, he said, when I hear Stay Strong Dopey Nation without hearing Toodles, it's like getting a blowjob and instead of coming, getting kicked in the balls. <laughs> And with that, toodles, my friends. You don't have to. You don't even say stay strong. You're just gonna say toodles without a stay strong. Just toodles. Toodles. Jesus Christ. Toodles. 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 You don't have to say toodles. All right. Toodles. 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 Please drop a review. Just don't say toodles. Toodles. It's not cool. Toodles. 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 Fiftieth episode, I think you can say it. I won't. What about for, for the hundredth? I don't say toodles. I say stay strong, Nation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna edit that toodles and add it. Great. Uh, <laughs> you don't know how to do that anyway. All right, toodles. 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 Bye. Toodles. The first person I ever said toodles was that him. Nobody ever says toodles. Really? Thank you. Toodles. 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 Yeah, toodles. Let your freak flag fly. Toodles. 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 And? Toodles. Toodles. You said it. Oh, you God. said it. All right. Toodles. Wait, wait, wait. Toodles. 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 You don't have to say toodles every episode. Toodles. You don't have to say toodles on every episode. Say it. Say toodles? Yeah. Say strong and toodles. Toodles. You don't have to say toodles. 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 And thank you, Jesse. You don't have to say toodles. It's unnecessary. You don't need to say toodles every time. Toodles. You know, it doesn't have to happen like that. Stay strong, don't toodles. And it's not necessary. You don't have to say anything anymore. I just like. I know you think it's not necessary. It sounds very like gay and effeminate to say toodles. Toodles. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. And toodles. And write an email. And toodles. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be about toodles. Just and write an email. Toodles. Toodles. Don't say toodles. 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 You, you don't think that's a strong ending? I think it's a good ending. Beautiful. That's your ending? <laughs> uh, toodles is my ending. You know that. Imagine you're in front of somebody and they say, I love it when Chris says toodles. <laughs> what would happen to you? I would lean forward and say toodles. Dopey Nation, we love you and okay. we want you to be well. All right, toodles. You don't want them to be well? I do. Be well. Be well. And toodles. 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 Stay strong, my brothers yes, and sisters and, and, and recovery. Toodles. Toodles. Toodles.
Toodles. Toodles. Toodles. Toodles. Toodles. Toodles. Toodles. Toodles. Toodles. Toodles. Stay strong, my brothers and sisters. Toodles. Stay strong. Toodles. Don't say toodles. 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 Me not say toodles. Lord of mercy. Me not say toodles. 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 Write us a review. More reviews than Omar. Toodles. 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 Look, look, someone just liked my tweet just now. Toodles. 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 Toodles, toodles, say toodles. 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 Me not say toodles. Me not say toodles. Me not say toodles. 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 Say toodles. Don't say toodles. <laughs> I'm not saying toodles. You got everybody against me. Toodles. We don't. We don't need to say that. Take care, Dopey Nation, and toodles. You say take care, Dopey Nation? That's the new, that's okay. Is that the new Dopey tagline? Take care, Dopey Nation. Take care. And see ya. Toodles. Me not say toodles. 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 We'll see you next time. Toodles. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. And toodles. You don't have to say toodles. Uh, Chris says toodles. toodles. All right, stay strong, Dopey Nation. Toodles. 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 Thank you. And uh, toodles. Thank you. Toodles. You know, say toodles this one time. No. Toodles. Toodles. And thank you, Jessa Reed. Toodles. Toodles. You don't say that shit. Toodles. You don't have to say toodles every time. You really, you really don't have to say it. Toodles. 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 Stay strong, my brothers and sisters in that recovery. And toodles, I'm going to stop their call recorder. You can stay online. All right? Hey, but you don't have to say toodles. It's unnecessary. Toodles. One, two, three, four. And rented. Building standing set. Standing their ground to defend against the rest. For all at odds. Don't forget your bets. From the roof I yell. You hardly break a sweat. Sabotage. Chris, 
My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times. And Though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjos. Things hard to keep in tune. sit through the uh, big inbox emails feel free to play a clip on the show if you want if not I know it kind of sucks alright I really appreciate it thanks y'all